Season in Between is an Exit 52 production written and produced by me, Jake Luke. The information included is a byproduct of rigorous research, the sources of which you can find indexed in the show notes. Special thanks are owed to my teammates, Spencer, Eric, Brian, and Taylor, for always being there to offer up some help, some laughs, or both. This podcast is dedicated to the Baltimore sports fan, to anyone who feels stuck in the middle in life, and to the enduring memory of Steve McNair, who helped me fall in love with Ravens football in earnest. Episode 3, The New Guard. And he booms this one. That takes the fair catch free kick out of play. And it's Gannon. Gannon to the 40. Still on his feet at the 50. And the Ravens have won it 34-31. The Super Bowl belongs to Baltimore. Steve Pashati with his head coach. February 3rd, 2013. After punter Sam Cook took a snap in the end zone and deftly ran around to waste a total of eight seconds, he was chased out of the back by the San Francisco 49ers special teams unit for an intentional safety. With four seconds left and the Ravens up by three points, the 2006 draft pick boomed a free kick in the direction of 49ers returner Ted Ginn, who fielded the free punt and worked his way upfield before being engulfed by Baltimore's kick coverage team. And just like that, the game was over. The Ravens had beaten the 49ers by a score of 34-31. They were the Super Bowl champions of the 2012 NFL season. As you probably know, the coach that Steve Bashotti was embracing on the field as purple and gold confetti fell around them was not Brian Billick. And the quarterback who carried Baltimore through an unexpectedly historic playoff run to win the Super Bowl again at long last was not Steve McNair. In fact, it had been a few years since Steve's untimely and tragic death had rocked the football world to its core. Some of Billick's top field generals and Steve's old sparring partners and eventual teammates would hoist the Lombardi Trophy that night in a triumphant scene. Chief among them was the last remaining member of the Ravens' old guard, Ray Lewis. Having declared ahead of the beginning of the playoff run that it would be his, quote, last ride, Ray was closing the book on a historic career and hoping to do so in the best way possible. He had been there not just for Super Bowl 35, 12 years prior when he was named the game's MVP for a dominating performance against the Giants, but since the very, very beginning. From Maxie Bowen's workout of him that prompted the salty old scout to make him a red star player on Baltimore's board, to draft day in 1996 when he openly pondered what the name of the team was that had just selected him, Ray was unequivocally one of the founding men of this franchise. He had been there through the late 90s when Ted Marchabrota spent the first several years trying to instill some character in a faceless operation that desperately needed it. He had been there when Brian Billick was hired and subsequently brought an unapologetically cocky attitude to a team that hadn't accomplished anything up to that point. He was, of course, there when that gamble of showing his cards to the rest of the league like Billick had done paid off, when Baltimore won the Super Bowl out of nowhere in 2000. And he had been there since, when the organization's relentless pursuit of a second championship was constantly stifled by the offensive side of the ball not being able to pull its weight. Finally, they had gotten it done, and it was because Joe Flacco and a red-hot offense with weapons at wideout like Anquan Bolden and Torrey Smith, a pair of productive tight ends in Dennis Pitta and Ed Dixon, and a typically strong rushing attack with Ray Rice led the way. (laughs) 
Of course, there were other holdovers on defense who helped to lead the way as well. Second in command to Ray was safety Ed Reed, finally tasting the glory in his 11th season. Ditto for Terrell Suggs, who had been seeking his first as well. Up in front of them was Haloti Nada, the mammoth of a defensive lineman who had to limp across the finish line after being injured in the game, but stood on the dais with all of the rest of the proverbial new guard of Ravens, one of the group of guys that had been a young chess piece for Billick before turning into a vested veteran and a respected leader for John Harbaugh. But those three guys, and some others, were just the lucky ones. There were others, some of whom were every bit on their level, that got stuck in the space between two championship teams and never got to experience what the 2000 and the 2012 teams were lucky enough to. One of them found himself directly in the spotlight following the team's first Super Bowl in the year 2000, and despite all that pressure, still managed to live up to the hype. My name's Todd Heap. I'm tight end, first-round draft pick, Baltimore Ravens. I can make plays, make things happen when you need it the most, third downs. I'm not afraid to uh, call for the ball or be the guy that needs to make the play in that situation. Ron looping, end zone, touchdown, Todd Heap, the golden retriever. Golden retriever was maybe the perfect moniker for Todd Benjamin Heap, the 31st overall pick of the 2001 NFL Draft. A member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Heap was a faith-driven hulk of a young man who at 6 foot 5, 250 pounds, possessed a boyish charm that was offset by a fiery disposition between the lines. He had played tight end for the Arizona State Sun Devils, which would seem like a comically bad fit of a school choice for the Mormon menace, but for the fact that Heap chose it to stay close to his family, who had raised him in nearby Mesa. He broke the school record for receptions at ASU in just two seasons, clearly on the fast track for the NFL. As the Ravens were storming their way through the 2000 playoffs and eventually hoisting the Lombardi, Heap began preparing for the 2001 draft. He was mocked to the New York Giants at 30th by Paul Zimmerman, who said that the quick and productive pass catcher was also being eyed by the Raiders at 28. Dr. Z was nearly on the money, as Baltimore snagged Heap at 31 with the last pick of the first round. It was a very interesting situation he was stepping into. Baltimore still had Shannon Sharp on the roster, who would serve as a good mentor, if a bit of a foil for Heap from a personality standpoint. In fact, the entire Ravens roster at that point could be described as anathema to Heap in a general sense. While the young first rounder made a lot of noise on the field, he still had a certain all-shucks quality to him that was ripe for hazing from the likes of Sharp and the other big personalities on the roster that wasn't lacking for any. Much of it was chronicled in the first season of Hard Knocks, when HBO fired up their cameras and infiltrated the training camp of one of the most boisterous, lively defending Super Bowl champion locker rooms of all time. Heap, the fresh-faced, blonde-haired kid who was half faith and half football, was a figure they keyed in on as one of the most interesting additions to said locker room. Todd comes in with a little different challenge in that since he is the number one draft choice, there's a pretty good chance he's going to make this club. So the challenge for him clearly becomes, how can I contribute this year? I still don't think of myself as the first-round draft pick in the NFL. I, I just, I'm just a normal guy just walking around. It's still awkward for me to, to sign autographs. You know, it's part of the deal, and I love doing it, especially for the kids. All right, buddy. You really feel you like a, your guy inside sure. the, gla the glass wall, and everybody's looking in at you. Predictably, it was less about Heap's life itself in which he and his young wife try to enjoy their honeymoon before eventually moving into Baltimore after an emotional goodbye with their families, and more about his rapport with the Ravens' raunchy group of veterans, who were at the peak of their powers in the afterglow of Super Bowl 35. And by rapport, I mean round after round of hazing from the likes of Sharp, Tony Saragusa, Rod Woodson, and on down the line. You know, we mess around with the rookies a lot. You know, especially like around, you know, when they're going to eat or when they're doing stuff or, you know, when they just piss us off, we'll just have them like stand up and start telling us, you know, you know what, you, what round you were drafted. 
you know, how much your signing bonus was, so we know if they're going to buy us dinner or what, the, how, how much we're going to spend of their money. Y'all coming to the stage next is my understudy. <laughs> this is the guy that they brought in to replace Shannon Sharp. So without any further ado, let's put some hands together. Mr. Todd. Mr. Todd Heat. Mr. Todd Heat. Come on, Todd. Todd Heat from Arizona State. Signing bonus, 2.3. Oh, my! All these rookies come up and you know put their hands over Oklahoma Oklahoma get kiss my ass kid just shut up fight team on down the field fight with your might till victory is ours yeah none of them can sing we haven't seen one guy yet that can sing anything good long bear colors wave over others sing it to the tune of rock and the guys that don't usually get tied up and get thrown in the cold tub Wade Harmon was there from day one as the tight ends coach in Baltimore when he was drafted, and he remained there throughout his entire career. Looking back, he cherishes the experience of working with Todd. You know, really got lucky, you know, a couple years before that when we brought Shannon, you know, Shannon Sharp and Ben Coates and having those two guys, you know, one year, it was like unbelievable. Uh, for me, being a young coach, um, having those guys who were really good, really good in the classroom, really good um, taking care of themselves. You know, I mean, I probably learned you know as much or more from them than they learned from me. Um, but I try to get them, you know, positions to make plays and learn, and not not you know try to overcoach them. They were they were in good spot, um, so I think that helped me. And then getting a young guy like a Todd Heath, um, hungry, young, you know ready to learn, come in, you know, had never been in the NFL, just drafted first round, you know, that could, that could be pressure on people, you know, when you draft the first rounder, but I'd rather have that kind of pressure than, than, you know, having a guy that's not as talented and trying to get him to play like that. You know, it's, it's nice. Um, but Tom was a, was a true pro. He was, uh, you know, his, his, he, he was beyond his age and maturity. Um, and hardworking kid, wanted to do everything, you know, try to do everything right, try to work uh, and learn. And, uh, you know, I thought he was very successful. And, you know, you he, he always told me he would, you know, sacrifice a hit for a catch. And, you know, he, I said, well, sometimes you got to protect yourself too, you know. And he was always willing to go up and pull one down and take a hit and get back out there. And uh, so he was a lot of fun. It was fun to watch him, you know, as a, as a drafted rookie move up, make a Pro Bowl. He really had success, you know. Um, and, and it was it really just see him grow, you know, not only on the field, but off the field as well, you know, just seeing him having children and married and all that, you know, it was, it was, a, it was a fun experience for a young coach to, to have a guy like that early in your career and watch him grow. But while Heap was a stranger in a strange land from a personality standpoint, he fit right in from an on-the-field perspective. After a quiet rookie season in which Sharp was still bearing much of the load within the offense as the top tight end, Heap's breakout year was his 2002 sophomore campaign. To clear cap space and reset, the roster had been seriously rejiggered following the failed Elvis Gareback experiment. It was a risk to pair Heap with unproven quarterbacks in 2 such as Chris Redman and Jeff Blake, but if Heap had any misgivings about the team's total reset at quarterback as he assumed the starting tight end role, he didn't show it. In his second year, he went for 836 yards on 68 receptions with six touchdowns and was voted to the Pro Bowl to show for his efforts. 
Paul Zimmerman of Sports Illustrated picked Heat for his all-pro team, describing the second-year tight end as simply unstoppable in some games. It seems fitting that Ozzie Newsome, one of the all-time greats at the history of the position, had found a gem at tight end to headline his team for the next decade to come. The first pick of the proverbial new guard in 2001 was a rousing success thus far for the Ravens, and while their search for a quarterback would obviously continue on for years, Baltimore at the very least had found a security blanket for every wannabe franchise passer that would revolve in and out behind center for the next several seasons. But the amazing thing was that an immediate and perennial pro bowler like Heap wouldn't even prove to be the headliner of this new guard of players. That honor would go to the player who was drafted in round one, exactly one year after he had been in the 2002 NFL Draft. Ed, how you doing? Congratulations. Good, got a lot of excitement going on there. Well, I'm looking for that, uh, that passion I keep reading about and seeing about on TV that you bring to the game, so we're gonna need that up here. That was a relatively understated Brian Billick on the phone with the Ravens' 2002 first-round draft choice. If Billick had known that he was on the phone with the guy who would go on to become the greatest safety in the history of the sport, it's possible he'd have shown some more emotion. But you never did quite know with Brian, did you? In fairness, he wasn't the only one with a subdued reaction to this pick. April 12, 2002, Billick's old sparring partner Mike Preston files the following headline to the Baltimore Sun. Let's face it. Reed is a pick without pizzazz. Ed Reed. He sounds like a partner in a law firm, Preston wrote to begin his now infamous column in the wake of the first round of the 0-2 draft. Ed Reed? Isn't he someone's stockbroker? Actually, Reed was the number one draft pick of the Ravens yesterday, the 24th selection overall. The experts and the Ravens agree he was the leader of the top-ranked University of Miami's defense last fall, and that the free safety from St. Rose, Louisiana plays with the same passion as Ray Lewis. But no one was jumping up and down at the team's Owings Mills complex when Reed's name was called. It was like Reed had just been drafted into the Army instead of the National Football League. Another draft, just another player. Ed Reed's name had no juice. Preston has built a reputation in this town as the media ombudsman of a franchise that otherwise draws unanimous praise from the press in most situations. A lot of it deserved, some of it not. You can argue that this piece, which states Reed will likely be a good pick, if not an exciting one, is his magnum opus in how it came to represent Preston as a bit of a negative Nancy on a beat that didn't always warrant it. But in reading some of the quotes he included from Raven's Brass on the choice of Reed, plus the muted reaction within the war room, you can maybe begin to understand where his perspective had come from. He is not six feet, not a 4'4", not this, not that, just a football player, said Phil Savage. We're excited about Ed Reed, and the coaching staff is excited about having Ed Reed here too. Perhaps Preston thought the scouting director doth protest too much. Also backing the selection was Ozzie Newsom, who seemed to declare Reed's intangibles to be the selling point. The thing that really sold me on him is every time we watched Miami's defense and they needed a play to be made, Ed Reed made that play. When they needed a fire to be put out, Ed Reed put that fire out, Ozzie said. Ed Reed would go on to make a career out of being in the right place at the right time, with his tangible skills not being the sole reason for it, but rather a supplement of everything he did off the field. That included a maniacal work ethic in the film room that would become stuff of legend across the league, as well as more range and athleticism at the free safety position than we had ever seen and have seen since. But what was most apparent from day one with Reed was how made to wear the Ravens uniform he would prove himself to be, pretty much from day one. This is Reed in a rookie 2002 practice. Sauntering around in sweatpants and a midnight purple practice jersey, the rookie safety holds court with veterans, jokes around with coaches decades his senior, and quips well, see, about Halle Berry. Y'all gonna want to mic me up all the time, because I'm gonna give it to y'all raw. I'm gonna let y'all know how it is around here, man. 
Being I'm from Miami and all, we used to practice on Thanksgiving Day, early in the morning. They probably just finishing. Like I got a watch on, right? Funny. Coach, you look like some hands need to be on you, man. Some lotion, too. <laughs> God, man. Why you be thugging it like that, man? It's a little cold out here, dog. Don't let the elements get you, man. Don't let the elements get you. You ashy. Like you been tap dancing in white powder. I'm gonna go down there this shit, man. I'm gonna find me a Halle Berry. I'm gonna find Halle Berry, actually. I'm looking for Halle Berry. A lot of people looking for Halle Berry. She on the um, she on the cover of Cosmo, dog. Crazy. You know they know they know they know they know we read their book, dog. Who? Women know guys read Cosmo. You know what I'm talking about? That magazine. I that women. I don't read it though. You don't read it? I read it. I bought it last night for the first time, dog. And they have a section act. They had a section, a pullout section in there, dog, for men to read, dog to help them be um, better lovers or something like that. It was funny though, though, like the stuff they put in that dog. It's funny, dog. It's like they get some open tail on the street, man. Like they interview he has the laid back energy of a fifth year veteran who has the run of the place, but in reality, it's just a few months into his NFL career. If his direct predecessor in Todd Heap had been a fish out of water trying to adjust to his new life in the shadow of the bullies of Baltimore in his first training camp, Reed was a cool-headed customer that appeared to be woven into the fabric of the Ravens locker room from very early on in 2002. But as laid back as he sounds in that practice, don't mistake it for any type of complacency. That practice took place before their second matchup against the Bengals in Cincinnati when the rebuilding Ravens were still admirably in the playoff mix. While wearing the mic, he put on a show to help his team to victory. Down. Boy, that was a dangerous play for Cincinnati. Damn. Quarterback do like this is a run. It's a run. It's a run. Good job. Good job, D. Good job. Good job, D. Good job, D. Snap back to Harris. Ravens with pressure. It's blocked. Ball is loose. Ravens have it. Ron Johnson, touchdown. Chad Williams blocked the punt. They worried about me. Let's go, oh, Make a play, baby. Give it to him. Ravens have it at the 22. John Jones in. Double tight end. Play action fake. Blake back to throw. Plenty of time. Now starts to scramble to his left. Jamal Lewis wide open. Throws in the end zone. Touchdown. Todd Heap with the score. Touchdown. Good job, Todd. Hey, we got to make plays. We got to make plays on defense. Kittner back to throw. Ravens trying to find a pass rush. He has all day deep down the middle, and it's picked off. Oh, incomplete. It's ruled incomplete. Gary Baxter had it. Man, you're in crazy. Hey, you got Baxter. out of the shotgun, has the football. Ravens putting on some pressure. Kittner rolls to his right, throws down the middle, and is caught. First down, and that'll take us to the two-minute warning. Ravens trying to win the game. Kittner back to throw in the pocket. Plenty of time. Throws underneath. Yes! Broken up. The Ravens take over on downs. Adelis Thomas breaks it up, and once again, the Ravens defense with the game on the line makes the play. Not bad. Not bad. Can we build on this? Yeah. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. That's how you fight, too, though. Yeah, good man. It was ugly, but we got it. It was ugly, but we got it.
No ugly ones. Reed wearing the mic and proving himself to be a massive presence on the back end of the Ravens' defense certainly was a sign that already as a rookie, he had arrived as a key cog on Baltimore's defense. But it was one thing to do so when there was little competition in the safety room on a rebuilding roster. Reed's rookie season coincided perfectly with the Ravens' post-2001 salary cap purge that allowed for young players to shine. For example, the loss of Shannon Sharp allowed for a second-year Todd Heap to make a jump to the Pro Bowl in just his sophomore campaign. So the question somewhat remained. How would a promising but still relatively untested Ed Reed fare on the back end of a defense that was anchoring a team going for the Super Bowl? We would find out the next year in 2003 when the reloaded Ravens found themselves ready to make another run. Contingent upon the move they had made for a first-round quarterback, of course. As we all know, Kyle Bowler's rookie season would turn out to be a bust, with Anthony Wright stepping in and leading the Ravens to their first-ever AFC North title with a steady hand that was needed at the position. But despite some of his heroics, the Ravens hosting a playoff game that year for the first time in several seasons had less to do with him and more to do with the strength of the roster that Ozzie Newsom had miraculously reassembled as a Super Bowl-ready one in just a short, one-year turnaround. As would become his calling card, he did so mainly through the draft. As was becoming clear, finding young talent through the annual selection process was the young GM's bread and butter, and the disappointment of Bowler was simply an exception to something that was becoming rule. This was proven more so in 03, when Baltimore made their division title run not just on the backs of the old guard, like Ray Lewis, Jamal Lewis, and Jonathan Ogden, but also on the strength of the young talent who had joined the roster post-Super Bowl 35. In 2003, Todd Heap went back-to-back as a pro bowler, making a massive play in the playoffs that nearly beat Steve McNair and the Titans. Ed Reed did the same thing, snagging seven interceptions on the way to his first Pro Bowl and also picking off McNair in the ill-fated playoff game, his first big announcement to the rest of the football world that he had arrived and was here to stay. But it was perhaps another moment in the 03 season that Reed announced to his teammates what type of competitor he was and what he would do to help them win. In a Ravens Wired video for the team from that season, the one-in-one Ravens had traveled across the country to take on the San Diego Chargers in a game that would determine if they'd head towards the season quarter pole with a winning or losing record. The video begins with Reed on the team's practice field, soaking up the Southern California sun and being similarly laid back and jovial to how he had proven himself to be in a practice environment. But when the game hit, he became all business, and never more so than when he began to deal with a knee injury during the contest. It was his response to the injury that further cemented the type of badass the Ravens had drafted the prior season. After getting nicked in the knee, Reed fought through the pain and picked off a young Drew Brees to ice the game for Baltimore. 
The Ravens may not have known Ed Reed was going to be the greatest safety to ever touch a football field by that point, but they did know one thing. Since building a Super Bowl champion by starting out with strong first-round draft picks, Ozzie Newsom was now two for two with his new guard of players that he picked in the first round since winning that championship. As it happens, he wasn't done. Well, here's the Arizona offense we expected. Spread them out. Here comes Suggs. And there's Johnson in trouble, and there's the sack. Oh, they were trying to hold Suggs, and he just broke free of the hold. And Terrell Suggs leading the nation now with 21 sacks. Steve, and this guy is as good. He's down here in the corner. Watch him working against the tackle. They're going to flag the offensive tackle as well for a hole, but Terrell Suggs is as good as they get. Coming off the edge, and you know who he reminds me of, Steve? It's going to be scary here. Number 56 in blue. No way. NY Giants. None other than LT Lawrence Taylor. The guy could take over games single-handedly. That's too much pressure, though, Rams. You not can't so, be saying stuff like that. No, it's not too much pressure. LT. Terrell, Terrell Suggs. Steve. How about Derek Rogers, who played How about at Derek Arizona Rogers? State? How about LT? Do you run at him, or do you run away from him? In the draft in which the Ravens were desperately hoping to land a quarterback, preferably Byron Lefwich, their first first-round pick wound up being a defensive end from the Pac-10. When the Vikings' missed pick mishap occurred and the trade between them and Baltimore failed to be officially consummated, the Jacksonville Jaguars swept up Lefwich, and that was that. Of course, the Ravens would wind up with Kyle Bowler later in the round, so there was no harm, no foul. At least that's what they thought that night. Regardless of how Boulder turned out, though, the argument can be made that things turned out just fine for the Ravens in the 2003 NFL Draft. Because it was with that 10th pick that they wound up staying pat that they selected a future Hall of Famer for the second year in a row. Outside linebacker, defensive end from Arizona State, Terrell Suggs. Standing at 6'3", 265 pounds, Suggs was a big guy, but not necessarily the brick shithouse that defensive linemen had become known to be throughout the last 50-odd years of pro football becoming what it is in the modern day. But there was something different about him and some of his contemporaries that represented just how much the position was changing on the fly. Namely, the way they used that size they did have in combination with lethal speed to terrorize offensive tackles. One of these players was Dwight Freeney, who after a standout career at Syracuse in which he broke the NCAA single-season sack record, was drafted 11th overall by the Indianapolis Colts in the 2002 draft. It only stood for a single season when Suggs broke it for the Sun Devils a few months later. T. Sizzle, as his friends had taken a calling him, received a call on his cell in the middle of one of his classes from Freeney, congratulating him on the accomplishment. He basically said, hey, you beat my record, so now I'll keep going. Move that thing into the 20 to 22 sack range. And that sounded pretty good to me, Sugg said. So I went out and moved the record about as high as I could. You know how it is with sacks. The more you get, the more you want, right? Suggs not only moved the record, he relocated it to another planet by posting 24 total in the 2002 season. This is now considered one of the most unbreakable records in NCAA history, with the closest anyone coming to it since being Elvis Doomerville for Louisville in 2005. In what would wind up being his final year with the Sun Devils in 2002, Suggs was turning heads of NFL decision makers all across the league. We're really familiar with him because he plays at ASU, said Arizona Cardinals coach Dave McGinnis. He's just one of those natural rush guys. Quick, explosive, tenacious, you name it. Sure, there have been a lot of tackles taken in the last couple years, but everyone is looking for the edge rusher who can chase the passer. Suggs had made it known he wanted to play for his hometown Cardinals, who picked at six overall that year, which seemed like a distinct possibility. ESPN writer Len Pascarelli described him as a, quote, lead pipe lock to go in the top 10. But the Cardinals weren't the only team eyeing up the young pass rusher. It's hard to pass on a guy who can bring the heat from the outside, said Buffalo Bills general manager Tom Donahoe when asked about Suggs. 
Those guys are a premium. Even if it means overlooking some size limitations at times, like with some of the players here, you always look harder at a guy with pass rush skills. You tend subconsciously sometimes to move them up your board a little. Not everyone was convinced that the new prototype pass rusher was going to become a regular phenomenon, with some touting the need to stand up to the rush as a necessity for prospective D linemen. Defensive end Terrell Suggs had 44 sacks in three seasons at Arizona State, but he has to prove to scouts that he's stout enough to play the run, wrote Peter King for Sports Illustrated. At 262 pounds, he knows he needs to put on at least 10 pounds to be competitive against NFL tackles on first down. There's still a question of whether I'm just a pass rusher, he says. The same question was asked a year ago about lightning quick Dwight Freeney, a Syracuse defensive end who had 13 sacks as a rookie with the Colts in 2002. Suggs could go as high as third in the draft. While his college resume and physical profile would have scouts tantalized by what he could do, that was a concern among some in the NFL that was still fairly run heavy, as was the small matter of actually nailing the draft process itself. This was something that the ever-confident T-Sizzle ran into some issues with. As he would ultimately find out, most of it was all in his head, but after a pro day in which he struggled and was described as, quote, frustrated and nervous while going through drills in which his conditioning didn't exactly shine, there were some concerns within his camp that he may not go as highly as he had hoped. Thankfully, everything he had done up to that point wouldn't cease to do much of the heavy lifting for him, as those evaluating him wouldn't simply be able to ignore what a great prospect he was. You still have to look at the kid's body of work for his career, and let's face it, he was just hell on wheels as a pass rusher in college, said a scout from one AFC South franchise. Did he help himself? No, it's not like he moved himself up into position to be considered for the top overall pick, but he isn't going to fall too far. But the fact was that Suggs wanted to go in the top 10. After a historic college career, and considering his immense physical skills, it seemed like it should have been a lock, as suggested. But as draft day neared, the talented and talkative prospect remained unconvinced it would happen for him. The night before the draft, Suggs had been set up in a New York City hotel room close to Radio City. He tossed and turned in his bed, a wreck with anxiety that attending the event the next night would be nothing more than an embarrassment, and that just going in the first round wasn't enough. If he went much later than he wanted to, or was expecting, what was the point of even subjecting himself to the whirlwind of an experience? His agent, Larry Wickard, had flown in from Los Angeles on a red eye and was genuinely hearing Terrell's concerns out and considered advising him not to attend simply for the sake of his own mental well-being. But ultimately, some discussion on the topic brought them to the conclusion that it was worth sticking around for. And then we just figured, you know what? He's just too good a player not to be taken in the top 10. And he decided to stick around and just see how it all played out, said Wickard. Wickard, Suggs, and his family made their way to the green room that night and the wait began. Terrell tapped his feet on the carpet and eyed up the sixth slot where the Arizona Cardinals would be picking. But before he could begin to dream of himself in their red and white uniforms, they traded out of the position to the New Orleans Saints, who took defensive tackle Jonathan Sullivan. It wasn't a quarterback-heavy draft quite yet, with Carson Palmer being the only one taken at first overall. Charles Rogers, Andre Johnson, Dwayne Robertson, Terrence Newman, and Sullivan were all players taken at spots where Suggs likely saw himself as the potential choice, but it wasn't to be. If the clock felt like it was moving to Suggs and Wickard, things began to move very quickly for the Minnesota Vikings, who boxed a trade back with the Baltimore Ravens at 7th overall, allowing the Jacksonville Jaguars to move in and take the second QB of the night in Byron Lefwich. At 8, the Carolina Panthers took tackle Jordan Gross, with their needed pass rusher firmly filled with Julius Peppers in-house. Ninth saw the Minnesota Vikings take defensive tackle Kevin Williams, meaning there was one more opportunity left for Suggs to be picked in the top 10, as he had so hoped. As it happened, the team who held the 10th pick was the one holding the proverbial bag from the failed trade attempt with Minnesota. That team, of course, was Baltimore. With Leftwich off the board and a needed edge rusher to supplement their defensive line and bolster it in front of Ray Lewis and company, they were staring at one of the best defensive ends in the history of college football right in the face. As usual, Ozzie Newsom didn't flinch. The Ravens called in the pick, and while there was no way to know at the night of, they had hit yet another home run in the first round of the draft. 
listening to them talk from that night, you get the sense that even if they didn't know, they had a pretty solid idea of what they were getting. I'm not going to say exactly where we had Suggs rated, said a Baltimore scout. Let's just say we got a guy at the 10th pick who's a lot higher on our board. To us, he was a steal, really. Bold words, especially after they were a few moments away from trading up for another player. But the Ravens brass had earned the benefit of the doubt at that point. Perhaps a pretty big sign of their affinity for Suggs was the fact that they didn't panic after missing out on Leftwich and just take the next best quarterback. Instead, they sucked to their board and took Suggs with 10, despite their continued need at QB. A need that would be addressed later that night, of course, but it was a gamble they took nonetheless. When you have good players, you find ways to use them. Believe me, we'll figure out a way to get Terrell onto the field and allow him to do what he does best, Ozzie Newsom said. As excited as the Ravens were about their first-round pick, it's possible that Suggs and his camp sounded even more pumped up about the new marriage from a fit standpoint. Let's be honest, getting into the top 10 was a big thing for Terrell, no doubt about it, Wickard said. But in this league, it's about getting to a very good organization, too, and no one has a better track record in the draft than Ozzie Newsom in the last five or six years. It's a great place for my guy. Suggs had done his homework on potential suitors, and he saw Baltimore as one of the absolute best on offer, if you believe what he had to say about them that night. That's a team that loves to play defense, said Suggs. I mean, Ray Lewis sets the tone for everyone, and I think I can relate pretty good to what they do. I'm not going to sit here and make any kinds of boasts or take shots at the teams who passed on me, but this whole experience has put a little bit of a chip on my shoulder. I'm looking forward to lining up with the guys they have there on defense. For a guy who said he wasn't going to boast, his next line may sound a bit strange. But with the benefit of hindsight, it was vintage T-Sizzle. No predictions, he said, but I'll be disappointed if I don't go out and get double digits and sacks right out of the box. As far as all the talk about my 40 times, well, I can't remember that many times I had to chase a quarterback for 40 yards. He hadn't wound up in Arizona as he had hoped, but in landing in a hard-nosed city with a defensive approach to roster building and culture, it seemed like Suggs had found the next best thing. He and Kyle Buller arrived in Owings Mills as the face of the future for a Ravens team that officially felt ready to move out of the shadow of the 2000 Super Bowl team and forge a new identity that didn't change upon their formula for the sake of doing so, but rather improved upon it by finally figuring things out on offense. As we know, this didn't exactly work out thanks to a number of factors that hindered Buller's development. But as much of a bummer as that would prove itself to be, the 2003 draft would turn out to still be a good one for Baltimore. A big part of that was because of Suggs' ability to live up to his non-prediction prediction. The young Dynamo came flaming hot out of the gates that year, posting a sack in each of his first four games, the only player in NFL history to do that up to that point, rookie or not. Defensive coordinator Mike Nolan was quick to point out that they weren't fluky either. The sacks he's gotten, he's earned them, he said. Sometimes when a guy misses an assignment, you get a clear lane to the quarterback and boom, everybody looks like a genius. But nobody's made mistakes with him. They've made him work for them. All told, Suggs wound up with 12 sacks that season, hitting the double-digit figure that he'd somewhat presumably alluded to. It wasn't just that which made him the 2003 NFL Defensive Rookie of the Year, though, which he won at a landslide. The 20-year-old also forced six fumbles, batted two passes, and picked one off to add to his already mammoth stat sheet. Suggs was a unique character, you know, especially me being coached at tight ends because we were lined up against him, you know, in practice every day, in training camp. And it was funny, you know, I never, I never seen a guy improve so much um, than he did that first year, even that second year. Like, it, I can still remember early training camp, like his rookie year. I mean, we'd run, we were running right at him, and you know, he shoot, he was dropping, thinking it was a pass. You know, he didn't know what was going on. It took him a little transition. But then, you know, it didn't take long. And one of those days, we came off the ball trying to block him and reach him. And, man, he just, you know, it, it all changed. Like, he's got his arms and his hands into us. He set that edge and it was strong. And 
I was looking and told the tight ends, I said, hey, those, those days are over, man. This guy's got to figure it out. We're going to have a work cut out for us. But, you know, it's fun because, you know, we saw as much stuff, you know, every day in practice or training camp. You know, we had to go against those kind of guys every day. And, you know, so it kind of made, you know, playing against other teams, there was nothing really that, that shocked us or surprised us. Our guys were very multiple fronts and pressures, you know, so we got to see a lot of things. And plus, they were really good players. You know, so we knew if we could have success against our guys and, and train against our guys that, uh, you know, a lot of times game days were going to be a little, little easier than they were during the week. Ray Lewis, the main headliner left of the old guard that anchored the Ravens' defense, but now after the purge that saw them part ways with much of the talent that had helped them win Super Bowl 35, his old running mates were much fewer and further between. Now, they had hit on two young studs in a row in Reed and Suggs that would hold things down both behind him and in front of them, as Ozzie Newsom continued to prove his legendary eye for talent was still among the best in the league. Lewis had begun to battle some injuries by that point in his career, and was perhaps starting to feel his age. But the infusion of young talent seemed to revitalize things for him, even if it just was for the fact that he wouldn't have to go through an elongated rebuild. On Suggs, he administered the typical round of hazing, but also respected what he brought to the Ravens' locker room pretty much from day one. He's a great kid with a lot of great energy for the game, he said, and he understands the game, respects it. As for Reed, the veteran middle linebacker and young safety seemed to enjoy a partnership that had an unspoken amount of mutual respect, even despite their difference in age. A Sports Illustrated article from 2004, after Reed's breakout year, details how close they had gotten by that point. Strong safety Ed Reed spends much of his free time breaking down film at the home of teammate Ray Lewis, it reads. The extra work appears to be paying off, as the 5'11", 200-pound Reed is quickly developing into one of the league's premier defensive players. Last season, he earned his first Pro Bowl berth after intercepting seven passes and excelling on special teams. Despite their early exit from the 2003 playoffs, there was plenty of reason for optimism in Baltimore moving forward into 2004 and beyond. Depending on your perspective, of course. If you were, say, Brian Billick, having heated discussions with Steve Bishotti as the latter was taking over as owner, maybe you were feeling a bit of pressure. But from a fan's perspective, the defense looked as solid as it had since 2000, and there were some intriguing pieces on the offensive side of the ball, not to mention the fact that Kyle Bowler still had the mystery of potential on his side. And really, it's Ed Reed. Uh, if you if you have to single out one, uh, there towards towards the end of the first round, and the guy that's just sitting there, and you know he takes him in, and from just just an unbelievable draft pick, and uh, just complete game changing talent. He finds him at the bottom of the first round, and that was just one where people were like, "He's a he's a wizard," you know. He found that. I mean, he he had found. Uh, uh, towards the end of the first round as well. And so he, he was really developing uh, an, uh, a, a reputation for being able to do that and just being really good at it. And, and you know, and he was, it wasn't a reputation. He was good at it. And, and, and he would find linemen. He had a theory. I mean, we could do a whole other show on it. You know, he, he, he would find the offensive linemen in the middle rounds, uh, third round guys, sometimes even later. And uh, there were, there were, Late round guys, uh, Dalius Thomas, uh, I believe a sixth round draft pick uh, is, is a all pro eventually. So uh, by 2004, I mean, they were losing. They started, they had a couple of, the bowler pick did not help. And, uh, and of course they didn't get the guy they wanted, but uh, certainly uh, you don't hit them all in the draft. And it's unfortunate that that's one they missed on. But they, in the meantime, he was hitting on an awful lot of them, and and definitely the Ravens were developing a reputation as a as a 
as a team, and they were sort of lone wolves. They didn't belong to the scouting combines. They did their own scouting and that sort of had their own, and that was definitely Belichick's influence on Ozzy. And uh, you're going to do your own thing scouting-wise, have your own opinions, and don't don't commingle your information. And they were developing a, a reputation as a team that was just smart and really pretty good at this. 2004 would prove to be the harsh comedown of disappointment that so often proves itself to be the cousin of promise, as Bowler's sophomore year was a disappointing effort. As Bowler himself will tell you, much of that was on his inability to play up to par, but it would be unfair to look at the situation around him and unequivocally place all of the blame on his shoulders. There was the matter of the Ravens over-investing in his development to the point that he seemed to have a coach for every single aspect of the game, which seemed to cause some analysis paralysis for him. And there was the other major point, which was equally, if not more important. The fact that the Ravens had failed to surround Kyle with plus talent at the wide receiver position to help open up the offense around him. The more things change with the Ravens, the more they stay the same, right? Maybe. Because the fact is that in the spring of 2004, they thought they had made the move that would solve the problem position which even had bugged them then for years and years. In 2003, they had trotted out Travis Taylor, Marcus Robinson, and Frank Sanders to start at the position, which, even for the time, was a bit of a motley crew. They knew they would need to be better than that to help facilitate the second-year leap they were hoping for out of Bowler, and as luck would have it, the player they thought could help do so was slated to become a free agent in the 2004 offseason. That player was Terrell Owens, the controversial San Francisco 49ers receiver who seemed to make almost as many negative headlines as he did game-changing plays. Almost. As controversial as T.O. was, he didn't have many off-the-field issues. In fact, the Ravens had handled much worse in terms of public relations in recent years. Anything from Ray Lewis's involvement in the 2000 murder trial to a drug possession rap that Jamal Lewis was concurrently dealing with as the Ravens were considering signing Owens dwarfed the issues that the star receiver brought to the table in practicality. Those included excessive celebrations, public spats with teammates and coaches, and a general air of drama that was the somewhat new phenomenon of the, quote, diva receiver would bring into an otherwise defensively dominated locker room should the Ravens make the move. Ozzie Newsom spearheaded a research team that presented the positives and negatives of signing Owens, with the former being literally everything he brought to the field for a brutally handicapped passing attack, and the latter touching on a potentially tough locker room fit, as well as the high salary he would command. Traditionally, T.O. is the kind of free agent we don't sign, Bill said at the time. We don't usually make big splashes in March. It hasn't been the Ravens' way. For what it's worth, Ray Lewis publicly campaigned for the team to pursue T.O., something that carried a lot of weight with the team's brass. Billick was skeptical that Baltimore would be able to meet his number in the first place, but wanted to make a difference for his young quarterback, Ozzie Newsom made the pitch anyway, talking to Owens and his agent, David Joseph, over the phone extensively. He came away thinking that once Owens officially hit the market, Baltimore would have a good chance of being one of the top teams in the running to sign him. But thanks to a mistake by Joseph, circumstances changed to the point that Baltimore may not have had to sign him at all. On February 26, it came out that Owens' agent had inexplicably failed to file the paperwork necessary to make his client a free agent, missing the February 21st deadline. Baltimore and the rest of the teams in the running to sign T.O. were baffled. There was a lot of anger directed towards Joseph, the agent, and a lot of what now is thrown around in regards to Owens' status. Incredibly, his rights were still held by San Francisco, even though he wasn't technically under contract with them. That meant he was just left with a few options negotiate a new deal with the 49ers, or do so with a new team, but only after San Francisco agreed to a trade to send him there. It was a pretty stunning twist that such a high-profile player would be put in a position like this, but Ozzy remained undeterred. He worked the phones vigorously, staying in touch with Owens through David Joseph and also with Terry Donahue, the GM of the 49ers, to try and work out a trade package that would land him the rights to negotiate with T.O. 
Everything that Newsom was hearing from Owen's camp was positive, and it seemed to be trending towards the Ravens being his preferred destination. What's more was the fact that the 49ers' asking price of a second-round pick was very much within a reasonable price range for them. Three teams were in the mix as a conclusion neared. The Ravens, the Jets, and the Eagles. New York picked 10 spots ahead of Baltimore in the draft, but Owens didn't want to seem to go there. That left the Ravens and the Eagles, with the latter picking seven spots later than Baltimore. With the Ravens possessing the better pick and having a good, continued line of dialogue with David Joseph, it seemed more and more like T.O. coming to Baltimore was going to be the reality. Ozzie remained patient and wasn't going to overplay his hand, but Billick, who had been the doubting Thomas throughout the whole affair, started to feel a sense of urgency to get the deal done. Eventually, Terry Donahue told Newsom that the Ravens had the best offer out to the 49ers, and that unless something significantly better came across the table that night, then the Ravens had officially won the Terrell Owens sweepstakes. Close it out tonight, Billick told Ozzie impatiently. Write it up. Let's get this done before something happens. Ozzie and Billick had a yin and yang dynamic, with the bombastic, loquacious head coach matched perfectly in temperament by his quieter, more measured general manager. Ozzie heard Brian's concerns out, but was content to let the play develop in front of him, and was ultimately rewarded for doing so. Or so he thought. The next morning, Donahue called Ozzie up and told him that he had accepted the Ravens' offer. Terrell Owens was going to be a Raven. All that was left was putting pen to paper. Ozzie called up Owens personally to congratulate him and coordinate travel to Baltimore, but he was confused when all he got in response to his congratulations was some variation on Talk to My Agent from T.O., Reluctantly, Ozzie and a simmering Brian Billick picked up the phone to call David Joseph, who had suddenly changed his tune as well. Joseph, who had bungled Owens' free agency period to begin with, was now telling Newsom that Philadelphia was offering more money. And as a result, that's where Owens wanted to play. Ozzie tried to be as firm as possible without losing his cool and explaining that it didn't matter where Owens wanted to play. He had been traded to the Ravens and was only permitted to negotiate a deal with them. Since the unprecedented situation had begun to play out, Newsom had done his research around the league to confirm that these were the rules of T.O.'s unconventional free agency period. But Joseph and Owens weren't hearing it, insisting to Newsom that they had made up their minds and Owens was going to be an eagle, simply because that's where he wanted to be. Billick was apoplectic, calling Joseph every name in the book and urging Ozzy to check with the league that what they were pooling wasn't kosher. Steve Bashotti had gotten involved by that point as well, telling Ozzy only to accept an explanation from Commissioner Paul Tagliabue, who for his part agreed that Owens should be a Raven based on the parameters laid out. As the controversy continued to play out, the stalemate between the three parties, Owens, the Ravens, and the Eagles, was clearly going to need to be mediated by a third party. Billick, who had probably already said too much, recused himself from the proceedings so as to avoid looking like a bad guy to Owens in the event that the receiver came to Baltimore and the two had to face one another every day. It ultimately did go to a special master to hear out all parties and make a determination. Bishotti sent what was technically outside help in Washington lawyer Dick Cass, who would soon become the Ravens team president, to oversee the proceedings on their behalf. What Cass heard in the hearing wasn't encouraging for Baltimore. Over the course of the hearing, David Joseph revealed that the league had done a poor job communicating some new rule changes that moved the deadline around for the paperwork that he had been too late to file on, and that his understandable mistake in missing it was unfairly costing Terrell Owens his unrestricted free agent status on a technicality. Cass made it clear to the Ravens brass that Owens had a strong case, and that Baltimore should prepare for the worst. His fears were confirmed when the master ruled against them, simply declaring that the Eagles send a fifth-round pick the Ravens' way to compensate for being hard done by in the whole saga. Philly's front office happily forked that price over with the Ravens retaining the second rounder they had originally planned to give the 49ers, and just like that, Ozzie and co. had missed out on the most high-profile free agent they had ever pursued, and they did so in embarrassing fashion. Yeah, I remember it was it was 
thought it was going to be done. I remember at one time, I thought that it was important that they agreed. I don't know if it was just with his agent or not with him or what happened, but thought that at one time it was going to happen. Um, and it, it, for some reason, I don't remember exactly how it fell out, but something I thought it was going to happen, but then it didn't. Um, but yeah, I thought it was, a, we kind of all thought it was a done deal. And, uh, you know, who knows, you know, yeah, if that would have worked out. I mean, it was, you know, sometimes those, those players are really good. Sometimes they, they cause more problems than, than they're good. Um, but sometimes they don't. Sometimes, you know, it, it, it gets you over the top and get that attitude or uh, make some plays. And, and uh, but yeah, that was a funny time. I don't, I don't remember exactly what happened, but I do remember that we thought that it was a done deal. Making matters worse was the fact that they were essentially held hostage in regards to the receiver market over the opening days of free agency. Because of the fact that they were going to be operating under the assumption that Owens was going to become a Raven, massive salary and all, they were precluded from pursuing other names at the position who may have helped them out in 2004. One of them was Marcus Robinson, one of their starters from the 2003 season, who had developed into a solid player. As he watched the saga unfold, he understandably began to think about his own future, with the idea that Owens coming to Baltimore would make an obsolete within the Ravens' offense. With that in mind, he accepted an offer from the Minnesota Vikings, leaving the Ravens worse off at receiver than they'd been in 03 after T.O. ultimately stiffed them. It was a fiasco of an opening to 2004 free agency, with the Ravens fuming from how badly they felt they'd been done in. Billick, as usual, was hot under the collar, not just for how this would affect his offense, but for the disrespect shown to his longtime partner for whom he'd grown close to. It's one thing they let me down or even to let Steve down, but how could they let Ozzie Newsom down this way, he said. All he's ever done is follow all the rules the league has. He's on the competition committee for crying out loud, and they do this to him? He fumed in private, but kept a stiff upper lip in the media, as was the Billick way. Our collective mindset is to improve this team, he said. We'll keep doing this through the draft, free agency, and in other ways. It's a disappointment not to get T.O., but I'm confident in our abilities to raise the Ravens to the next level. That confidence, especially as it related to the wide receiver position, was unfounded. The 2004 Baltimore Ravens were a competitive 9-7 squad who were in the playoff race until the very end of the regular season, but it didn't have the good vibes of a team that was building towards something. Instead, it was Kyle Bowler's step back, clocking in as Football Outsiders' 27th most efficient quarterback that season, that served as a bit of an albatross on the year. His performance hadn't been bad enough that Baltimore's brass had talked themselves out of him yet, but in hindsight, that was almost an even bigger issue because of the fact that they ultimately would. This time around, Matt Cavanaugh would prove to be the sacrificial lamb, as Billick's defense of him following the 03 season could only go so far. Bowler's lack of exponential progress would be what sent him to the chopping block, fired after 2004 as a scapegoat for the struggles of a poor passing attack. And that was ultimately the issue, the passing game. Baltimore's rushing attack was 10th in 2004's DVOA rankings, with a still strong offensive line leading the way for a still effective Jamal Lewis, even after a controversial offseason for the star running back. But the Ravens were still stuck in third gear on offense thanks to their lack of success through the air. And while Team Brass was quick to point the finger at Kavanaugh and by extension Bowler, it was their lack of success at addressing the receiver position that should also be pointed to for why things never took off. The Ravens started the season with Kevin Johnson, Randy Himes, and Clarence Moore at wideout in 4 none of whom made much of an impact in Marcus Robinson's or Terrell Owens' absence. Veteran Travis Taylor led the way in receiving yards with a paltry 421, numbers that don't even seem real in the wide-open, pass-happy league we watch today. After Bowler played all 16 games but was still seemingly stuck in neutral, Baltimore had one more card to play as far as convincing themselves he could still be the guy. They had still failed to surround him with the proper talent, at least as far as the wide receiver position was concerned. 
Todd Heap was still as effective as ever, but he needed someone to help him carry the load through the air. The Ravens closed up shop after missing the playoffs in 2004, with one of their top goals for the coming few months being to do that for Heap and, more importantly, Kyle Bowler. In early March of 2005, they got that guy, and thankfully for them, he had no designs of backing out on the deal they were offering. March 2nd, 2005. Len Pascarelli leads his filing to ESPN for that day with the following. On the first day of free agency, the Baltimore Ravens took care of their first item on their offseason to-do list, reaching an agreement in principle with wide receiver Derek Mason on a five-year contract. Derek Mason was a name that the Baltimore Ravens and their fans, who had grown to hate the Tennessee Titans, were very familiar with by 2005. Drafted in 1997, Mason joined up with the Tennessee Oilers when they were still playing in Memphis prior to the completion of Adelphia Coliseum in Nashville. A fourth-round pick, standing at 5'10", 200 pounds, Mason was never the most physically imposing or technically dominant player on the football field, but he had an uncanny knack for getting open and catching the ball consistently when he did. Together, he and Steve McNair came up as two young guns within a transient organization over the course of the late 90s. But by the early aughts, when the Titans had finally fully settled into Nashville, Mason settled into his role as a featured man in their passing attack. A promising first several seasons in which he had flashed as a developmental mid-round pick gave way to the full payoff of that development, as the new millennium meant a new chapter of productivity for Mason. In 2000, he racked up 895 receiving yards and five scores, which were both career highs by a wide margin, with his play being one of the bigger factors in the Titans earning the number one seed. They'd of course be knocked out by the Ravens that year, but it wouldn't be Derek's last shot at a Super Bowl, nor would that be the peak of his productivity. In fact, he was only headed uphill. Over the next four seasons, Mason would hit the 1,000-yard mark in each of them, and he'd make his impact felt in big games as well, some of which were against the team he'd wind up signing with. By the end of 2004, Steve McNair's health was ailing, and the Titans were reeling from an uncharacteristic 5-11 season, two factors which had them ready to reset the engine and start up a rebuild. They'd hang on to McNair for another season, but many of his running mates from the late 90s and early 2000s would be leaving town in a salary cap purge reminiscent of the one we saw from the Ravens in 2001. It in fact had started a year earlier, when the team released running back Eddie George to clear some space on their books moving forward. And it would happen again after the 4 season when the Titans let go of the still very productive Derek Mason, who was only heading into his age 31 season. There was still plenty of reason to believe that the respected veteran had some gas in the tank to work with, and it became clear early on that Baltimore was on the top of the list as far as teams who felt this way. Funny enough, he wasn't the first option they had explored that offseason. Randy Moss, the all-world wideout still well within his prime, was on his way out of Minnesota via trade in February of the 05 season, and with his ties to Brian Billick, he listed Baltimore as one of his few preferred landing spots. Given that he was still one of the best players at his position, the Ravens sniffed around on making a move, but ultimately didn't meet the Vikings' large asking price. He wound up going to Oakland to play for the Raiders, leaving the Ravens with still a move to make at the position. That is, if they were determined to fix it. The T.O. debacle had left a bad taste in their mouths a year prior, and being unable to compete with teams from a compensation standpoint to land a top talent like Moss had to leave the Ravens feeling somewhat discouraged about their luck in finding proven pieces to complete their receiving room. But if they did feel down at all, their blues would be quickly remedied just a few weeks later with the release of Derek Mason by the Titans. Respected, productive, and still with plenty to offer, the cap casualty also wouldn't count against Baltimore's compensatory pick formula, an exploitative edge that Ozzie Newsom was still somewhat of a pioneer of at the time. As it happened, the feeling was mutual, and on the first day of free agency, the two parties made things official. We were high on his list, and he was high on our list, Ozzie Newsom said to the press after completing the signing. He was really the only receiver where we had any active discussions with thus far. What this does is we bring in a veteran receiver who has the type of attitude and type of personality that we look for in a football player. 
Brian Billick had been through a lot over the last few years, at least relative to a Super Bowl-winning head coach, and the Terrell Owens saga brought out perhaps the angriest side of him that we'd ever see publicly. He was under pressure as a former offensive hire to finally bring some success to what was ostensibly his side of the ball in Baltimore, and continuously swinging and missing at a critical position on that side of the ball wasn't helping matters. But he had stayed patient and backed Ozzie Newsom through the ups and mostly downs of draft busts and free agency misses. The signing of Derek Mason is the most substantial move we've made, particularly in free agency, particularly at the wide receiver position, he said. When you take someone of Derek Mason's caliber, you expect it to have an impact. 2005 was going to be a make-or-break year for Kyle Bowler, and the Ravens were prepared to pull out all the stops to ensure the former would happen. After inking Mason to that five-year deal, they doubled down on the position in the draft by selecting speedy wideout Mark Clayton in the first round. A Sports Illustrated piece from September of 05, just before the season opener, saw Michael Silver highlighting the potential this team had to do something special. Our defense puts so much fear into an opposing offense, and as an offense, we've got to start having that same effect, says Derek Mason of his new unit, which ranked 31st in the league in yards per game last season. This group is as talented as any group of receivers in the NFL. If you're on the outside, you can't see it, but I practice with these guys every day, and I know what we've got. In Mason, the Ravens snagged a go-to receiver who has more catches, 191, over the past two seasons than anyone in the league, except for the Rams' Torrey Holt. The ninth-year veteran's smooth moves and ability to find holes in the coverage have blown away his new teammates and coaches. If there's a better route runner in the league, I haven't seen him, Todd Heap says. He's so precise, he has great hands and a great suddenness about him. Brian Billick, the one-time Vikings offensive coordinator, goes even further in his praise of Mason. He's as good coming in and out of breaks as anybody I've been around, and I had Chris Carter. In Clayton, Baltimore believes it got a younger version of Mason, complete with a penchant for making big plays on special teams. He's special, man, Bowler says of Clayton. He's a natural playmaker. As high as the vibes were heading into 2005, they all hinged on the success of the team's most important piece, Kyle Bowler. We all know that it didn't work out for him, and we know that the Ravens would be closing on a deal for Steve McNair to come in and take his place a little over a year after they had acquired Mason. As much as Steve was something of a band-aided quarterback, there was reason to believe that his skills combined with this new infusion of talent, a new guard, if you will, from Ed Reed to Terrell Suggs to the tenured but new-to-town Derek Mason, could come to Baltimore and form up with the old guard who knew what it took to win the Super Bowl and finally get them back over the hump. That was the thought process heading into 2006 when McNair took the reins, and it was certainly the thought process when they were 4-0 after four games into the year. But they may not have even gotten there without another member of the new guard coming into the fold, starting his NFL career mere months before those games were played. We just made a trade with Cleveland, and we're taking you with the 12th pick. You saw that? Yep. Hey, you ready to come to Baltimore? Haloti Nada, defensive tackle, Oregon. H-A-L-O-T-I-N-G-A-T-A. Haloti Nada, defensive tackle, Oregon. Haloti Nada was every bit a unique character as his name made him sound, what with his six foot four, three hundred and forty pound frame belied by a cool, easygoing nature that made him what many would refer to as a gentle giant. With parents of Tongan ancestry, Nada possessed a natural inner strength and a quiet Polynesian swagger to him that made him a good hang and a menace on the football field, or the rugby pitch, a sport that he was also successful at growing up in Utah. But it was football that came naturally to him, with his wide frame and massive punch in his first step lending itself to natural talent along the defensive line. He was a natural at just about everything he did, to the point that his infamously strict parents referred to him as the, quote, perfect one, a natural point of contention between Haloti and his less well-behaved siblings. 
It was because of those parents and the great work ethic that they instilled in him that Nada would find himself as one of the top prospects in the 2006 NFL Draft, following a stellar career at Oregon in which he had set various defensive records for the Pac-10. And it was in their memory that he would work as hard as possible to prove that he would be worth it. Haloti's father Solomon had passed away in a car accident a few years prior, something that had shaken him to his core for a time. And it was only after several years of hard personal work and rediscovering of his faith that had him on the path toward the NFL that Haloti's mother Olga passed away from heart failure, just a few months before he'd be selected by the Ravens in the first round of the 2006 NFL Draft. Haloti was crushed, but he had learned a lot about the grieving process from his father's recent passing and put it to use on his mission to make them both proud. I just wish I could have been there for her last couple days, Haloti said during his rookie year. But from my dad passing away, I learned that I can't go down that road again. I looked at things and started praying more. I started thanking God that I had both of them in my life. Knowing that they both were proud of me when they died has helped me move forward. Every now and then I'll have an emotional moment or day just thinking about them, Nada says. But what makes me most happy is knowing they're together, watching me play football in the NFL. On draft night of 06, Baltimore bumped up one spot from 13 to 12 in a trade with the division rival Browns in a move to secure Nada after their board including top names like Vince Young and Michael Huff had been predictably picked clean. Well, after no trades, uh, this draft has turned into trade-a-palooza. <laughs> Let's go to the podium. With the uh, 12th choice in the 2006 NFL draft just acquired from Cleveland, the Baltimore Ravens select Haloti Nata, defensive tackle from the University of Oregon. My question to you, though, is why would the Browns trade with the Ravens? You know what I'm saying? Why would they go ahead? I mean, <laughs> because I, they're going to get an extra draft pick. Well, out that, of they, it. they better they better make do on that so, pick if you so, think so about Phil it. So Phil Savage I mean. is sitting there and saying, "Okay, there's two defensive tackles on the board. We only thought there'd be one at this point. So our opponent within the division is going to get one of them anyway. If we can turn that to our advantage, flip picks, we can still get our guy and pick up another. That's why you do business with an opponent." You already heard the Ravens' war room's jubilant reaction to landing their guy, but not everyone was so convinced that night that the pick was a good one. You're going to need a propane torch to light a fire under this guy, said ESPN's Mark Schlereth on their draft broadcast. I don't see a guy who can control the line of scrimmage. He took plays off consistently. He's on the ground more than the grass. I don't like the pick at all. Schlereth's comments made their way to the Ravens' media availability later that evening, and the team's brass was understandably dismissive. I think before we got Tony Saragusa and Sam Adams, the two defensive tackles on their Super Bowl team, they said they took a lot of plays off, Ozzie Newsom said. Nada is on a defense where everybody runs to the football, so that's not a concern. Ozzie's second-in-command was even more fired up, at least visibly, about landing the mammoth D-tackle. Nada was clearly the best guy left on our board, Eric DaCosta said. There was a little bit of concern that Cleveland could take him. It was a good trade to make. This is a big block of granite. He is a guy who's tough to move. I think he's going to pose nightmares for teams in our division trying to get him off the ball. For Nada's part, even at age 22, he wasn't taking any kind of victory lap after being selected. I need to be more consistent, he said. I need to play hard all the time and not just when I want to. Perhaps it was his dogged work ethic or maybe his immense talents. Most likely, it was a combination of both. But Haloti Nada would prove to be every bit the player and person his parents believed he could be, and the Ravens hoped that he would. This would show itself in his very first NFL game, when the Ravens traveled down to Tampa Bay to take on the Buccaneers in the 2006 opening game. Galloway that way, dropping his Sims, dropping Sims, his pass knocked down, intercepted by a lineman to the 45, to the 40, to the 45, to the 50, down the near side. It's Nagata, Nada down the sideline with a convoy. The big off rookie is knocked out of bounds, short of the seven-yard line. 
The ball deflected into the hands of the big fella. He went rumbling down the near sideline. In his first game as a pro, Haloti snared an errant tip ball from Chris Sims and went rumbling down the left side of the field, headed towards the end zone. It would have taken every bit the burst he had to take it back for six, and eventually he was caught, being pushed out of bounds at the 7-yard line. After the game, he was asked if he was thinking about a house call as soon as he got his hands on the ball. Yeah, I thought about it, he said. Just at me being a big guy, I run out of gas pretty fast. I was sprinting and my legs got tired. It had to have been a thrilling day for both Nada and the team, as it looked like they may have hit on yet another first-rounder, and in a year where they were pushing their chips in to try and make a run. Perhaps even more encouraging from the team side of things is that the young man didn't let any of it go to his head. After a zero-tackle day in which he mainly cleared the decks for Ray Lewis and Adelius Thomas, both of whom did have a big day on the stack sheet, Nada pointed out what could have gone better for him. I felt like I could have gotten some tackles, but I'll just work on that and watch the film and get better every week, he said. The 2006 Ravens may not have gotten better every week through the first four, but they did go undefeated over this stretch. It was safe to say the formula that they had in mind was working. The old guard of Super Bowl 35 champions comprised of Ray Lewis, Adelius Thomas, Jonathan Ogden, and Jamal Lewis led the way with their pedigree, while the new guard, headlined by Todd Heap, Ed Reed, and Terrell Suggs, and rounded out by vets like Derek Mason and rookie talents like Haloti Nada, were firing on all cylinders as well. This all might have been for naught if the franchise's biggest gamble from the offseason, betting that Steve McNair could stay healthy and drive the bus, hadn't paid off. So far, though, it had. After two blowout victories over Tampa Bay and Oakland, and then two consecutive nail-biters in which the Ravens had summoned the spirit of prime Marvin Hagler to throw late knockout punches, things were off to a fine start to the 2006 season. But even the heaviest of the heavyweights take a few body blows here and there. It's just the nature of the sport. And it was within the next few weeks that Baltimore would begin to learn if they were a real heavyweight amongst the 06 contenders or just a one-hit wonder who'd gotten off to a hot start. In a Ravens mailbag column from October 3rd, 2006, Mike Preston reviews Baltimore's start to the season in the Baltimore Sun in a way that only he could. Insightful if a little snide, plain if a little too negative, and generally unwilling to get swept up in the typical generalizations that the emotions of a 4-0 start can elicit. In it, he questions the caliber of quarterback the Ravens had faced up to that point, defends some lackluster play from Jamal Lewis, is unimpressed with the offense in general, and wonders whether Steve McNair still has the horsepower to keep up with the young and exciting quarterbacks on offer, like Phillip Rivers. When asked if he was getting the vibe that the 2006 team was copying the 2000 team's formula, Mike was somewhat skeptical. You can look at it that way, but the defense isn't nearly as dominating as the one in 2000, he writes. San Diego had the Ravens' defense on the ropes and could have put up some points if Coach Marty Schottenheimer hadn't been so conservative in the second half. The Ravens want to score points. It's not like they're trying to rediscover that magic formula from 2000 to 2001. Also, the Ravens did have a running game back then, and the ground game hasn't materialized yet this season. With that said, the Ravens have a good team, and they hustle until the final second. The team chemistry is good, but they have some holes better teams will exploit. San Diego exposed some weaknesses on both interior lines, especially the lack of pass rush from the front four when the Ravens don't blitz. When asked further about how Baltimore beat San Diego in spite of themselves, Mike does offer up a generalization, but one that seems fitting in retrospect. It's the mojo, man. The moon and the stars are aligned with the Ravens early in the season. Life is good. Just take it and enjoy it. This is a funny quote to look back on now, as it's something that Ravens fans have wrestled with a ton over the years. They root for a franchise that wins a lot, but they don't do it in the prettiest of fashion very often. In fact, they seem to take pride in winning ugly. So when the Ravens got off to a 4-0 start, but played the last two games in close, ugly fashion by just getting past a bad Browns team and winning in spite of themselves at home over the Chargers, the mood around town, at least among some of the more curmudgeonly columnists, was still somewhat muted. 
Sure, the team was 4-0, and yes, Steve McNair was solid and steady. This was a contrast to the roller coaster of the last two seasons, in which Kyle Bowler's ups and downs maddened the fan base and franchise week to week. But there were still some understandable questions, and it was fair to wonder if the full picture had come into view at just the quarter pole of the season. Offensively, they lacked a certain bite, and while there were obvious questions about what Steve McNair was capable of at his extended age and injury history, questions remained about the play calling, too. After firing Matt Cavanaugh following the 2004 season, in a move that had been a long time coming to many, including Steve Bishotti, who had made it a sticking point with Brian Billick, Jim Fossil had gotten the nod to be the franchise's offensive coordinator. The veteran coach was an old friend of Billick's and was looked at as a veteran professional who could get the best out of Bowler in 2005. That obviously hadn't worked out, and nor was he off to an especially hot start to 06 in the eyes of some. Would the good mojo and continued wins be enough to keep the spotlight off of him? Only time would tell. The bye was two weeks away, and Baltimore had a few tests left to pass before they could be considered a bona fide elite team in a strong AFC. Their first test was a Week 5 away game in primetime at the Broncos in Denver under the lights. With Jake Plummer as the incumbent quarterback surrounded by a very solid roster, it wouldn't be an easy outing for a Ravens team that had struggled to find their fifth gear lately. Even though they are wet and cold, as the 2-1 Broncos host the 4-0 Baltimore Ravens. Play action, Plummer, swing pass, near side to Tatum Bell, and Terrell Suggs forces the fumble, the Ravens have recovered at the 40-yard line. The Ravens bring Matt Stover on, and Stover will attempt a 30-yard field goal from the right hash mark. Sam Cook with the hold. Snap is high, hold is down, kick is up, and it is good. Baltimore's solid start, predicated on their formula of forcing a turnover and getting some points out of it, was a welcome sight, but it was quickly matched by a Denver team who appeared ready to get in the muck with them and play ball control. Seven. It's going to be a handoff left side. Plummer hits it to the 10, the 15, got a first down. Plummer's out of the 20-yard line, and a big, big run. That's the second first down of the half. A good tackle by Ed Reed on Tatum Bell. Sam Cook to punt for the Ravens. This is a low line drive effort from the 25. This is Darren Williams. Williams makes a nice cut, steps out of a tackle. Darren's to 30, 35. Here we go. Darren Williams, 40, 45, midfield. It is hit from behind and driven to the turf at the Baltimore 42-yard line. Elam's attempt will be a 43 yards to tie the game. Leach with the snap. Plumber the placement. Kick on the way. Plenty of distance, and it is good. Jason Elam from 43 yards out. Another opportunity was dashed after a driving Ravens offense got a bit greedy, with McNair trying to fit one into the corner of the end zone on a perennial pro bowler. He throws a fade right side ball, Chant Bailey. Bailey's got the first interception for the Broncos this season. Chant Bailey went up inside of the receiver, Clarence Moore. And Denver's first interception of the season comes at an opportune time with 30 seconds left in the first half. Denver took the ball and dialed up a creative play that was reminiscent of one a young Steve McNair would run, sending Jake Plummer on the move into Baltimore territory. Shotgun time for Plummer. Jake takes the snap, runs to his right, design quarterback Keegan. Jake's going to get it. He's at midfield. The ball fumbled, but it goes into the Broncos' sideline. This attempt will be a 44 yards by Jason Elam for the lead. Snap good, placement down. Elam with the right foot sends it skyward, and it is good! It had turned into a kicker's duel by that point, with Jason Elam besting Matt Stover by virtue of more opportunities. The game remained quiet for much of the night from there. 
With the Ravens taking over on their own side of the field and down three with under seven minutes left, Steve saw an opportunity to try and make something happen downfield. And once again, he cost his team by going for it. man rush, McNair, with plenty of time. Now he starts rolling to his left, throws the run, pass going to be intercepted. Darren Williams with the second interception of the game by the Broncos. Second interception of the early season by the Bronco defense. Straight eye formation. Now Alexander, the tight end, set left. Plummer will throw a fade to Ron Smith. He's got it, and Denver's got a touchdown. And Denver has won it here in Invesco Field for the second consecutive home game. They have not given up a touchdown. And they have beaten the Baltimore Ravens. Final score, Denver 13, Baltimore 3. While the Ravens were likely aware of the fact that they had flaws, this was a tough way to lose their first game of the year, especially after gutting things out in similar fashion over the prior four weeks to four consecutive victories. Now at 4-1, and one, some of the issues that Preston had been alluding to in his prior week column had shown through. But most importantly, Steve McNair did exactly what he couldn't do, turn the ball over thanks to a few reckless decisions and cost the Ravens the game. Game management and clutch play was supposed to be his calling card for the year, and up to that point, he'd answered the bell. But not at Denver, and it underscored the point that despite their strong roster, Baltimore needed a steady hand from McNair in order to win games. Multiple members of the new guard seemed to know it as well. You know what? I don't know what's too harsh to say about the offense, Todd Heap said. Now you've really got to look at yourselves and see what you can do better. I've been saying that for the last four weeks. We didn't play our best ball the last four weeks, and we've won. The only difference this week is that we didn't play our best ball, and we lost. Derek Mason was equally disgusted. Three points, he said, grimacing at his locker. You can't win games with three points. One of the other stars of the new guard, Ed Reed, took the loss in stride, shaking it off during the walk back to the locker room with Mark Clayton by his side. We're going to get better. You know what I'm saying? We're going to get better, man. That's what it's for. It's for growing. Don't hold your head down. It's long season. What you going to do now? Get better, baby. We'll be back in Bronco country. We got Carolina. See, if Carolina ain't on your mind, we'll go home, something wrong. He was right that the Panthers were heading to town, and he was clearly in the right headspace to take them on. Was the rest of the squad? They'd look like it right out of the gate. And we are just about ready to get underway. Sellout crowd at M&T Bank Stadium on a sun-drenched, chilly, crisp afternoon. Third and five from the Ravens 41. Delone to throw. Looks left. Backing under pressure. Fires near sideline. Juan Landry comes down with the ball at the 35-yard line. On the strength of Dewan Landry's interception, the Ravens' defense continued to do their part by getting off to a hot start. Unfortunately for them, Steve McNair's football IQ seemed to have remained back in Denver. McNair will throw. Has time. Looks over the middle. Throws. It is incomplete and intercepted at the 38-yard line. Coming up from the safety spot, Colin Branch took an overthrow. It was a brutal turn of events for McNair, who needed a clean performance to get his mojo back following his costly outing against the Broncos. But even costlier that day? A hit that Steve took in the first quarter, which forced him to the sideline with a concussion. He was ruled out of the game, and a character we hadn't heard from in a while, Kyle Bowler, would be left to save the day. It was a tough spot to be in for the still young player, who'd been humbled just about every which way a quarterback can be. McNair had gotten off to a nice start to the year with the 4-0 record, but with the last two games yielding turnover and health issues for the veteran, stepping in against Carolina was a good opportunity for Bowler to see if he could potentially ride a ship that had suddenly gotten a bit rocky. Kyle was about to find out just how much grit he had after a tough couple of years had put him in this position. And thankfully for him, Baltimore's defense wasn't just going to pack it in either. 
After the lone back, he'll get it on a delayed handoff. He's across the 30, fumbles the ball. Loose ball, but Carolina Ooh, appears to have come up with it. Now the Ravens say they have it. And yeah, the Ravens do. Go. Mark Scott has it. He pulls the ball out of the pile. Second and one, Ravens. At the 19, bowler to throw. Looks end zone, throws end zone. Bounces off his retained receiver. Caught by Mark Clayton for the touchdown. Oh, good fortune. Thy name is Clayton, and the Ravens take the lead. Bowler capitalized on the turnover by pushing the Ravens into the Panthers' red zone, converting a wild and fairly lucky touchdown pass that bounced off of Derek Mason's hands and into the breadbasket of awaiting Mark Clayton. It was a fun sequence to put the Ravens up 7-3, but Carolina quickly responded. First and 10 Carolina from the Ravens' 42. Shalome, play action, looks left, throws deep, far sideline, man there, touchdown Carolina. Drew Carter on the reception. He got behind Samari Roll, and the Panthers have regained. After a scoreless third quarter, both teams traded mistakes. Looking for Colbert. He throws near sideline. Wobbly pass. Intercepted. Chris McAllister. Chris McAllister comes down with the pick. Bowler to throw under pressure. Steps up. Fires over the middle. He's intercepted. Picked off at the 20-yard line. Richard Marshall returns it all the way to the 45-yard line, still on his feet, and run out of bounds. By it was disappointing from Bowler, who had made the type of mistake that had defined his career, rolling right and throwing back across his body into the hands of a waiting Panther defender. Carolina extended their lead to 16-7 in the fourth quarter. But that wasn't quite it for the day. Here comes the blitz. Bowler's pass is deflected. It is caught. Mark Clayton. Midfield. He might go. 40. 35. 30. He's going all the way. 15. 10. 5. Touchdown. Mark Clayton. A second deflected pass taken for a score. And it's not over yet. The Ravens have pulled within two of Carolina. Cologne looks left, has time, throws deep, he's got a man wide open, Steve Smith has it, 25-yard line, 20, 15, 10, 5, he leaps and he's in for the touchdown. How's that for deflating hope in an instant? The Ravens' defense had been great up to that point in the season, but they simply couldn't get off the field in crucial situations on that day. It's always frustrating when the other team converts third downs, Terrell Suggs said. We wanted to get off the field, but they kept making big plays. I give them a lot of credit. Miraculously, Mark Clayton plucked another tip bowler pass out of the air, this time outracing the entire defense to take it home for a score. It was a fun moment between two young players, one of whom could have really used one of those after a tough run of it. But after the valiant effort, the Panthers still have the remaining horsepower to pull away. Time runs out on the Ravens. Their comeback comes up short. 23-21, Carolina over the Ravens. Bowler would throw a third touchdown to Todd Heap, which kept some slim hope alive for a brief moment, but when it was all said and done, the Ravens walked away with their second loss of the season, heading into the team's bye week. Now at 4-2, Baltimore was slipping a bit following their undefeated start, and had some things to think about over their week off. The two things that Steve McNair needed to avoid to get the Ravens where they needed to go, turnovers and injuries, had reared their head for the veteran in these last two games, both of which had been losses. Reminiscent of six years ago, Brian Billick was facing a major midseason turning point when it came to the quarterback position. In 2000, he had made a change at the position itself, a masterstroke in retrospect that had led them to a Super Bowl title thanks in part to Trent Dilfer's calming presence. This time around, though, such a break glass in case of emergency move was not available to him. His two options at QB were the now struggling McNair, who would be declared healthy for the following game after the bye, and Bowler. It might have been tempting to turn to the former first-round pick for at least a week to allow McNair to rest up and get his mind right, and see if Kyle could steer the ship back into calmer waters. 
But against the 5-1 and one New Orleans Saints at the thunderously loud Superdome in its first year in operation post-Hurricane Katrina and their newly acquired thoroughbred at quarterbacking Drew Brees, that would have been akin to taking a pop gun to a showdown at the OK Corral. For as much heart as Bullerig showed against the Panthers, his big plays have been somewhat fluky, and the vintage erratic plays had still been very much on display. So from the young and volatile loose cannon and the aging, ailing workhorse, Billick chose the latter, reinserting McNair into the starting lineup for the pivotal showdown that could either get the Ravens to a comfy 5-2 or a rickety 4-3. But he also made another move, a more high-profile one that turned the heat away from the quarterback position and back towards the coaching staff. Filed to ESPN on October 17th, 2006, Billick takes over Ravens play calling after firing Fossil. The ESPN News and Services article detailing the midseason firing of offensive coordinator Jim Fossil takes many of its quotes from an 11-minute news conference Brian Billick held to announce and explain the move. Clearly, in order for us to expand on our 4-2 start, we have to have more offensive productivity, he said to the media. It was my opinion going forward to bring about the level of production we needed offensively to go to where we need to go that I needed to step back in on a day-to-day basis. Calling Fossil a loyal and valuable coach, Billick was expectedly deferential when addressing the second offensive coordinator firing he'd made in less than two years. This is clearly one of the most difficult decisions I've ever had to make, not only from a professional level, but for the obvious personal reasons because of the relationship that Jim and I have, said Billick, who had called Steve Bishotti after meeting with Fossil on Monday to inform him of the decision. I have an obligation to this organization to do what I think is in the best interest of this team, regardless of how it affects you personally. It happened, I think, right, I think we were playing New Orleans, I think, the next game. Um, yeah, we kind of stumbled. Um, I think it was just, you know, Jim was a, a great guy, a good coach. Um, and I think there was just some philosophical things that, you know, I think, you know, by that one point, Brian called plays and then, you know, then he didn't. And then, you know, we had uh, smell guys through there. And then um, I think when, when he got rid of Matt, I think he thought about um, calling plays again and he didn't. And I think maybe in hindsight, maybe he, he maybe wished he would have. Um, he brought Jim in and didn't, you know, I, I think it was just a different philosophy. And uh, I, I don't think just Brian was comfortable with that and some of the dynamics with that. So. When reading his quotes on the situation, it feels somewhat clear that this move was less about Fossil and more about how he felt in relation to his own standing within the organization, which at that time could be characterized as somewhat shaky. There was no single incident or episode that brought about this change, Billick said. It was a collective evaluation on my part that something dramatic needed to be done. Something dramatic needed to be done. This wasn't the typical cocky fire and brimstone quote that we had come to expect from Billick over the years. Rather, this felt like a head coach on his back heels, feeling the weight of unmet expectations bearing down on him. 4-2 was no doubt a good start to the year, but with two consecutive losses in which Baltimore's offense had faltered, plus their unimpressive performance in some of the victories, Billick pulled the last lever available to an offensive-minded head coach when feeling the heat. And left holding the bag in this situation was Fossil, who had joined the team just two years ago as an overqualified offensive consultant, a mere mechanics guru for Kyle Bowler in 2004, while he waited for a head coaching job to open up. It was fair to wonder how things had gotten to that point in such a short amount of time, considering Fossil had probably expected to leave Baltimore of his own volition after just a season or two. But when you look back on Kavanaugh being brought back for 4 on a short leash and Kyle Bowler's disappointing, injury-riddled start, the writing was on the wall that taking the offensive coordinator position was a doomed proposition for Fossil from day one. 
But despite a difficult 2005 season and the lackluster start to 06 that had gotten him to this point, Fossil himself felt that the game had been rigged against him in more ways than one. Brian Billick would never be described by anyone as shy about voicing his opinions or hesitant to get involved in situations to the point of, if not micromanagement, then bordering on it. When reached for comment about his firing, Fossil went into detail about how Billick's meddling in the offense on a granular level had made it difficult for him to do his job in a way that he felt good about. Everywhere I've been, I've gotten the offense up and running pretty fast, he said. It didn't happen here, and the reason I believe is that I wasn't in full control. Following the firing, the Baltimore Sun reported that despite their personal relationship remaining as strong as ever, Billick and Fossil had a, quote, awkward professional dynamic. This included what was described as heated arguments and conflicts in game planning. It made sense. The two were born leaders, both having already reached the pinnacle of their profession. Billick was already famous for not taking any shit, and it would make sense that Fossil, with a damn near identical resume, save for one rather significant bullet point that Billick himself had taken from him, wouldn't take any either. Not even from Billick himself, who was very much Fossil's boss. The friction became untenable, and when it finally resulted in his being let go in October of 06, Fossil was saddened, but not surprised. This has been building for quite a while, and finally, I went to Brian last week and said, look, Brian, you've always run a good offense, and I've always run a good offense, but the bottom line is, somebody has to be in charge. Somebody has to pull the trigger, and it can't be two guys, Fossil told ESPN's Chris Mortensen. Brian was very good about this. He told me, you're right, my job's on the line, and the only way I can deal with it is if I take control of the offense. Indeed, this was not the same storm the lion's den, Billick, we had seen patrolling the sidelines en route to the Super Bowl in 2000. This was run-through-the-jungle, survival mode Brian Billick, waving a spear of a different sort this time, in a last-ditch effort to ward off the barbarians at the gate that was his job security. It's also interesting to hear, thinking back on one of the lines that had gotten Billick hired from the Ravens in the first place. The line that he had given to Ozzie Newsom about not believing in compromise, because compromise meant that no one would bear the responsibility of whatever decision was being made. For much of Fossil's tenure, it sounded as though Billick was trying to have his cake and eat it too in regards to the offense, meddling in the day-to-day operations while sending Fossil out to take the heat for their failures, which had been piling up for the year plus that Fossil had called plays. Now, though, this move eliminated all of that. There would be no compromise to be had because it all laid on Billick's shoulders as he strapped on the headset and laminated the play sheet for what would be the most critical stretch of his entire career. After a Cinderella run to a championship in his second season, a contentious start to his relationship with the team's new owner, and a failure to develop a massive investment in a young quarterback, the roller coaster that was Brian Billick's tenure as head coach of the Baltimore Ravens was ahead of max speed and close to flying off the tracks. It was up to him, and only him, to get it back onto them. He and Newsom had placed their faith in Steve McNair, who had had his moments as a starter up to that point, but needed to give them more, or at least more wins, to stabilize things. Step one for Billick was getting a bi-week rested McNair back into the lineup and playing winning football. Jonathan Ogden was a member of the old guard, a mammoth of a man who didn't speak up often, but whose voice carried weight when he did. He'd been there since before almost anyone in the organization, and he had seen plenty of ups and downs both before and during Billick's tenure. We're a talented team, he said. What we're looking for is a spark. We've got guys who can make things happen. We've got some guys who may be near the end of their careers, but guys who have been successful at other places. I think the change will be good for us. This very well summed up the dynamic of the 06 Ravens, an exceptionally talented team with a great mix of young and veteran talent that just needed a spark on offense. Namely, they needed their big investment at quarterback to step up to the plate and start hitting, just as he had so many times throughout his great and adversity-laden career. Could Brian Billick's direct involvement get Steve McNair and the offense back on track? The first offensive series in the Superdome out of the bye week didn't inspire confidence that it would. Marty approaches the ball and we are underway. He puts Derek Mason in motion left to right. 
Hands off to Lewis again. And he drops the ball. The Saints may have covered it at the 50-yard line. There was penetration. It is the New Orleans Saints football. Jamal Lewis, who hadn't been shy about criticizing the coaching staff in recent weeks ahead of Fossil's firing, opened the critical contest with a miscue that the Ravens hoped wouldn't define their day. Breeze and the Saints' high-powered attack took the ball around midfield after the turnover and promptly did the same thing. It was a huge moment, one that can be looked back on as potentially season-saving. Baltimore's offense couldn't afford another slow start, especially in a hostile environment against a 5-1 squad like the Saints. There had been many times already that season where the Ravens' defense had come up with a big turnover only for the offense to do nothing with it and waste away critical momentum. This would not be one of those times. McNair, quarterback draw. He's in the goal line and scores as the Ravens strike first this afternoon in New Orleans. Scored. He walked in. From an empty set, McNair sauntered into the end zone on a quarterback draw, looking like he had turned back the clock 10 years thanks to a beautiful call from Billick in his 06 debut as de facto offensive coordinator. Perhaps looking to outdo the Ravens on their next drive, Sean Payton and the Saints dialed up a pass for rookie running back Reggie Bush, who took a shot to the end zone in double coverage. Quick pitch, Bush, right side. He runs into trouble. Now he throws to the end zone, and it is intercepted in the back of the end zone. Chris McAllister comes down with the interception. And Reggie Bush just made his first colossal mistake. In trying to outdo Billick, Sean Payton had done too much. McAllister, playing as well as he had since coming to the team in 1999, was in on his second turnover of the day. Billick smelled blood in the water and sent out Steve McNair to capitalize. He lobs the ball to the middle. Clarence Moore on the reception. Touchdown, Ravens. On the slant. On the slant, baby. <laughs> Hitting Clarence Moore in stride to put the Ravens up 14-0 in a shell-shocked Superdome, Steve McNair threw up both of his hands over his head in his vintage Omega Psi Pi-inspired touchdown celebration, hearkening back to the days when he was a shark in minnow-infested waters at Alcorn State. But Steve wasn't the only one feeling himself that afternoon. The Ravens' defense, spectacular up to that point, weren't ready to call off the hunt yet. Ravens with that 46 defense look, they bring blip pressure, swing pass off the hands, and it's intercepted and taken in for a touchdown. Ronnie Prude with the pick six, and the Ravens on the board for a third time at the Superdome. Johnny on the spot, I tell you what, we get those balls tipped up, interceptions are bound to happen. Rookie cornerback Ronnie Prude walked in his score to run the number up 21 to nothing, and the route was on. Despite both of their first two touchdowns coming from his side of the ball, and a result of good play calling at that, Brian Billick was quick to point to the two interceptions for touchdowns, the first by Prude, and the second by fellow rookie DB Dewan Landry. Hit as he's thrown, intercepted Dewan Landry, and he's in for the touchdown! The Ravens with their second defensive touchdown of the afternoon. As the critical plays in the game. I particularly like the play calls of the two interceptions for touchdowns. Those are the hard ones to call, he said with a smile to the press after the game. But the defense had simply continued what had been a quietly historic year on the same course it had been. Billick deserved credit for good play calling that set up Steve McNair for success, and McNair deserved credit for living up to his reputation as a consummate pro and using the bye week to get his mind right and coming back ready to roll, doing so with his first three-touchdown performance of the season. More importantly, he didn't turn the ball over and left the Big Easy with a clean bill of health. The game ended 35-22 thanks to some garbage time production between Breeze and Marcus Colston, but was never even that close to begin with. 
When asked to rate his new coordinator, aka Billick's performance after one game, McNair was highly complimentary. I think he did a great job, he said. I think he put us in position to be successful. We got them off balance. We came in with the power game and did a lot of different things. When you put those little wrinkles in that keep defenses off balance and keep them thinking, half the battle is already won, and all you have to do is execute. Adding to that was Jamal Lewis, who despite recent frustrations with the coaching staff, saw the change to Billick as a positive one based on that performance. He confided in the media that there were times that even he didn't know what Billick was going to do, meaning that the Saints sure as hell weren't going to once the ball was snapped. It definitely brought a whole new mentality to our offense, Todd Heap said regarding the change. Each guy is accountable in that meeting room. You could really tell the way we executed Sunday that guys really took to that and made sure they were taking care of their jobs. Billick was buoyed by the big day, practically giddy when speaking with the media compared to some of the more contentious run-ins he'd had with them over the years. He joked about having a conversation with his coordinator, i.e. himself, about running the ball up big late, praised his players for their professionalism through the transition, and was surprisingly self-reflective in regards to the new responsibilities, or at least changed ones this would bring him. I've put it to the players. You're going to have to cover me here a little bit, he said. You're going to have to help me know when I've got to put more of that head coaching cap back on. For his part as one of the team's preeminent leaders, Jonathan Ogden recounted a story from the sideline to highlight that he and the rest of the players were up to the task of helping Billick juggle both roles. The guys were just committed, and we wanted to execute because we knew it was going to be tough on Brian as a play caller, so we wanted to try to make things work as well as we can out there so he can kind of coordinate and be the head coach at the same time, he said. At one point during the game, Brian looked like he was about to yell and cuss, and I started it for him. I was like, we've got to pick it up, just so he didn't have to. Go be the head coach. We'll take care of it. At 5-2, and two, the revitalized Ravens were pulling away from the pack in the AFC North, the rest of which was 500 or worse up to that point. Having just taken down one of the league's heavyweights on the road in convincing fashion, they were no doubt keen to turn their sights towards bigger targets. Coming up on the schedule was a game that Steve McNair was sure to have circled on his. But first, the Ravens had an at-home date with the still-alive 4-3 and three Cincinnati Bengals, coached by Marvin Lewis, who had coordinated the 2000 Ravens defense. A win would vault the Ravens to 6-2 and two and drop the Bengals to 4-4 four and four with a potential tie-breaking victory on the line. This one would require all of their attention, with former number one pick Carson Palmer now well into what was looking like a great career, particularly thanks to all the weapons he'd been armed with. In particular, Chad Ochocinco Johnson, the mouthy wideout who declared before the game that he wanted to hit Ray Lewis in the mouth to set the tone, as well as venerated slot machine TJ Hushmanzada. The Ravens would have their hands full, but a win would go very far for them. The Bengals have won the toss and elected to receive, so the Ravens' defense will get an early test facing Carson Palmer right out of the gate. McNair under center, backs in the eye. Tight formation on the line. Give his Lewis. Left side, he's got a hole. He's got a touchdown, and the Ravens on the board first against the Bengals. The offense picked up right where they left off, marching right down the field and pounding the ball in out of the I formation with a much happier Jamal Lewis. Following this, another dynamite sequence from the defense, which over the past several weeks had started to enter a historic echelon. It started with old guard sackmaster Adelius Thomas getting the best of 2003 first overall pick Carson Palmer, and it ended with Ed Reed, the face of the new guard, having one of his moves pulled on him. Blitz pressure. He's hit from behind and dropped back at the 23-yard line. A Dallas Thomas with a team-leading seventh sack of the season. Two receivers right, one receiver left. Ravens show blitz at the line. Now Ray Lewis backs off. They bring a cornerback blitz. Palmer throws deep. 
Left side, overthrown, intercepted. Samari roll, 40-yard line. He turns it to the 30, cuts to the near sideline. 25, he hands it off to Ed Reed. He's at the 10, the 5, touchdown, Ravens. Barely able to keep up with the play, the camera practically misses Samari Roll snatching a Palmer pass out of the air and pitching it over to Reed, who rumbled towards the end zone with a convoy surrounding him. It was a vindication for Roll, who had taken heat in recent weeks after being the culprit on big plays, surrendered to receivers like Steve Smith and Marcus Colston. Things happen, Roll said after the game. I may have three bad games in a month and everybody wants to say I can't play anymore. The crazy thing is, last night I told Ed I saw him take the ball from a guy in the Boston College game and it happened again today. Reed had become somewhat famous, or infamous if you ask Billick, for pitching the ball to other defenders after picking it off, in a daring effort to keep the return alive. It was just Samari having good awareness, Reed said of the young player emulating his move. It was a great play on his part in making the play, first and foremost, letting it go and realizing it was me. As much as Billick didn't like taking a big chance like that, as it had burned them before, to be fair, he very much liked being up 14 to nothing on a division rival. The Ravens tacked on a field goal for Matt Stover to go up 17-0 and appeared poised to take the lead into the locker room. But the Bengals were viewed as potential division favorites for good reason, not the least of which was their high-powered offense with quick strike potential. That was evident as Palmer and wide receiver TJ Hushmanzada pulled one back before halftime. Drops to throw, pumps once, now looking long, end zone, TJ Hushmanzada, touchdown! Threw it right side. TJ beat his man and took it into the end zone. It was Ed Reed back there in front of him, and the Bengals are on the board desperately needed. And that's a great matchup. You have TJ Hushmanzada on a safety, and that's the matchup that Carson Palmer's eyes lit up about. And, And he pumped fake to the left, threw it back to the right, and Ed Reed not quite able to get the hand up and deflect it, and TJ Hushmanzada ran by him. And again, you have a great slot receiver matched up on a safety instead of a slot corner, that's a matchup. This time, Reed was victimized, and the game was 17-7 from there on. This lead lasted through much of the third quarter, with the Matt Stover show continuing. The veteran kicker nailed another one to make the game 20-7, before lining up for yet another one to put the game nearly out of reach as the fourth quarter approached. After he nailed it, with 13 minutes remaining, the score was 23-10, and the Bengals marched down into the red zone and pulled within a touchdown deficit. Chad is wide to the left. Palmer under center. Give it to Rudy, straight up the middle, looking for the goal line, pushing it by! Touchdown, Rudy! What a tough run right there, boy. Rudy came after it big time on that one. He wasn't going to The Ravens offense, quieter than they'd been on their road trip in New Orleans, was only able to manage another field goal the rest of the way. Cincinnati nailed one of their own, and with 1.59 left in the game, the score was 26-20, with Carson Palmer running on the field with just enough time to go out there and break some hearts. As a fourth down effort after going almost nowhere ended with DeLon Landry draped on Hushmanzada, saving the game. Carson Palmer to throw, scrambling, throwing, and the ball is knocked away on TJ Hushmanzada, throwing his arms up in the air, waiting on a flag. Bengals coach is going, TJ he throws his helmet onto the field and several That's flags come flag. down. Baltimore takes a two-game lead in the AFC North, winning 26-20. They started out this one with a 14-0 lead in the first four and a half minutes. The veteran receiver was furious, throwing his helmet in frustration at the no-call and refusing to accept the 26-20 loss that put Baltimore in the catbird seat for the AFC North moving forward. This spilled over into the locker room when he rebuked the call and refused to give the Ravens the respect they had earned as a 6-2 outfit that led the division. We're better than Baltimore, Hushmanzada said. We know they're not better than us. And they know they're not better than us. We have better players than they have. We didn't win the game, so I'm sure they'll see that and laugh, but deep down, they know we're better than them. 
It was simple bluster, but also fairly disrespectful to a team that was built to win in a different fashion than the offensively-minded Bengals. For Carson Palmer, Hushman Zada, and Shag Johnson, the Ravens had Ray Lewis, Ed Reed, Haloti Nada, and Terrell Suggs headlining a defense that went even deeper than them. They had some difficult moments that year, but some of their other performances have been downright historic. Clearly, something was percolating with them, and the question of whether they could reach the heights they had in 2000 was starting to bubble to the surface. Terrell Suggs, one of the faces of the new guard, had missed out on the historic defense of 2000 and was clearly enjoying playing for what was beginning to look like a historic one and having some fun talking a little trash along the way. It's a really good, big win for the simple fact of the history with Marvin and Ocho, whatever his name is, Cinco de Mayo, Stinko, whatever you want to call him, he said. We had to set the tone. We had to let them know that the past couple of times they've pretty much owned M&T and we took it back today. We're letting them know this ain't the Ravens of old, and I think they felt it today. The defense getting their deserved flowers was to say nothing of the Ravens' offense, which after a turbulent few weeks had leveled off the plane following the bye. Brian Billick's play calling had mixed things up, and Steve McNair was back to playing winning football that had gotten the team off to a 4-0 start. Now at 6-2, they had weathered the storm that a two-game losing streak had wrought, bringing with it doubts about whether this team was a serious contender. While they wouldn't win a Super Bowl because of their offense, it felt fair to say the quiet part out loud now. They could win one because their offense had the capability of putting up points when necessary and getting out of the way. But before climbing the mountain that he'd never been able to scale in his career, getting oh so close in 1999, Steve McNair had another hill to scale. And this week, it was the hill of memories he'd built in multiple cities, but with one organization that he'd grown to love. The Ravens' Week 10 opponent was the Tennessee Titans, and the game would be played in Nashville, the town McNair had come to call home. Throughout the week, Steve downplayed the game as having a whole lot more meaning to him, but it was clear that he was simply playing his cards close to the vest. After 11 years of service to the franchise, in which he'd had them on the doorstep of winning the Super Bowl, taken home an MVP award, and then been ousted in an acrimonious manner when he wasn't even allowed to enter the facility, the ups and downs had been extreme. The stadium was full to watch the 2-6 and six Titans take the field, with many a McNair jersey, ranging from Oilers to Titans to, of course, Ravens, on display in the crowd. Steve's successor, the former Texas phenom Vince Young, was off to a lackluster start as a rookie starter and fresh off of a three-interception performance in which Tennessee had lost by 30. But there was no doubt that the young player would want to bring his A-game against the man he'd modeled his game after and whose massive shoes he'd stepped into. The Titans played a montage of Steve's highlights on the stadium's video board set to Green Day's Time of Your Life ahead of the game, a montage of a different sort than the one they'd prepared for Brian Billick ahead of the 2000 divisional round. McNair could feel himself getting a bit emotional as it all played out, but didn't slip out of his game mindset. It was pretty emotional before the game, he later said. I thought the tribute was very nice by the organization, but I knew two seconds after that they were going to try and knock me out. A reunion game for Derek Mason as well. The Ravens' number one receiver had McNair's back, and you could tell there was a fire in his eyes too. Once he got out here and he stepped on that field, you could tell he was ready to go, Mason said. You could tell that this game just meant a little bit much more to him than any other game thus far. He wanted to go out there and play well. That's expected. When you're with a team for 11 years and then they let you go, you want to come back and you want to play well and prove to them that you can still play. This carried over to the opening series. After the Titans opened the game at 3-0 following a Rob Barona's field goal, Steve opened the Ravens account in explosive fashion. Now he throws deep, man wide open. Clayton has a 30-yard line. He's going to go. 15, 10, 5, touchdown Ravens. Mark Clayton, wide open, and Steve McNair fouls. Clayton had no one within a country mile of him and jogged to the end zone as Steve threw up his arms in his signature celebration, the first of the day in front of his old fans. But if he thought that opening the game in such a way would mean it would be easy sledding for the entire affair, he was wrong. 
play action. Young rolls right. He's going to keep it. He's at the one. He's at the goal line. He is in for the touchdown. Tennessee shows blitz. Titans bring blitz. McNair under pressure back of the end zone. He stepped out of bounds, and that's going to be a safety. Steve McNair stepped on the back line before he threw the ball. After Young slashed his way into the end zone, Steve and the Ravens' offense found themselves backed up into their own, down 10-7. It was at that moment, perhaps caught up in the chaos, that Steve made a mental error that you don't see from a veteran of his stature leading to that safety. It was all compounded the next drive when the Ravens' defense, which had been dominant the week before, was unable to finish the play against Vince Young to devastating effect. Brings Bobby Wade in motion, triple receivers right. Young takes a snap, blitz pressure, he's hit from behind and brought down, now he laterals the ball. Steve has a 10, 5, headed to the end zone, touchdown Tennessee on an unbelievable ad lib by the rookie quarterback. It was vintage Vince, the type of play he'd made in burnt orange for so many years that had made him a household name. They were unable to convert for the two, but suddenly, Baltimore was down two scores on the road at 19-7. Not wanting to be outdueled by his young counterpart, the game began to slip away from Steve, who couldn't muster anything on the next drive, and let the ball back into Young's hands. After Chris McAllister jumped off sides on a field goal attempt that would have kept the game in striking distance, the Titans pounced and made it 26-7 halfway through the second quarter. Henry, left side, cuts back, he is in for the touchdown, and Tennessee puts six more points on the board. Our Ravens defensive line, they're getting knocked around in there. They need to be uh, a little bit more physical at the point of attack. Baltimore's defense was getting punched in the mouth by a rookie quarterback-led offense, and a few uncharacteristic mistakes by McNair had them down three scores in what was supposed to be a big day for the veteran. He had also thrown two interceptions to the same player, Lamont Thompson, something that typically sunk the Ravens' chances at a win due to the offense's lack of a fifth gear. Still, there was plenty of time left on the clock. Was that type of lead insurmountable for an offense that hadn't shown a propensity to come from behind? If you think the answer is yes, then allow me to introduce you to the man they call Air McNair. Back to with our prayers going with Lucy Smith. On first down, McNair to throw. Under pressure, throws underneath complete. Obi Mahaley has a Breaks a tackle, 20, 10, 5. Touchdown, Ravens on an Obi Mahaley reception. Matt Stover. Final play of the first half. High snap, kick is up. After dancing around in a chaotic pocket, Steve fired a dart to hit fullback Ovi Muhaley in stride, getting one back for Baltimore and keeping hope alive. He steadied the ship even further by putting Stover in range for a chip shot field goal that made the game 26-17 heading into the locker room. Slowly but surely, McNair was bringing the Ravens back into it. Helping this cause was a defense who had struggled all day, but finally began to find their mojo late in the game. And the Ravens have the ball at the 35. Reed escapes the tackle, spins to his left, still on his feet at the 30. And he'll finally be dragged down. No, he won't. He'll lateral the ball at the 45-yard line. Jerome Sapp has it there, and he is brought down. Hold is down. Kick is up. It is long enough, and it is good. Ed Reed snatched the tip ball out of the air and danced and pirouetted around before laddering the ball away to gain nothing and a show of can-do that Baltimore's defense had been lacking. McNair and the offense took the ball and mustered up a field goal to make the score 26-20 as the fourth quarter opened up. From there, neither team did much of anything, until, in an almost poetic twist, Steve McNair and Derek Mason combined for a decisive strike in front of their longtime former fans. Second down and six. Mason in motion to the far side. McNair will throw. Lance lobs end zone. Touchdown! Touchdown! Derek Mason and the Ravens have tied the game!
Nobody was around Mason in the end zone who celebrated in the paint that he'd had a lot of good times in over the years. Stover's extra point made it 27-26, to giving the Ravens a lead, but there was still the matter of closing the game out as over three minutes remained on the clock. Vince Young, much like Steve, had a bit of a knack for late-game heroics, and taking the ball with a chance to go and win the game with the whole NFL world watching was a perfect shot to prove himself as a worthy successor to Steve McNair in Nashville. He took the Titans well into Ravens territory, and after being stopped with 43 seconds left, he sent out kicker Rob Baronis to take the lead and likely the win. Spot the ball at the 43. Rob Baronis lines up his kick. There's a snap. Hold it down. Kick is blocked. Oh. The have blocked oh. the Don't touch it. Don't touch it. Trevor Price seals the deal, blocking a Rob Baronis field goal attempt, and the Ravens will leave Tennessee with a 27-26 win over the it was the Vlade Divac arms of Trevor Price, as Bart Scott had put it later, that won the game for the Ravens. The kick from Baronis had been very much makeable, but after a disappointing effort on defense all day, one of the Ravens' lower-profile superstars from that side of the ball made the game-winning play on special teams. The camera catches Steve letting out a victorious howl and pumping his fists in the air before heading out onto the field and kneeling the ball out in victory formation. Once that formality was over, he turned towards the locker room and walked off the field at Adelphia Coliseum as a winner, one last time. Only now, it was in a different uniform and served as a parting gift to the franchise that had cut bait with him in an unceremonious fashion. That's why you play this game, McNair said in the locker room. You're a competitor. Those are the things that you go back and look at and say, hey, this is what we get paid for, to come back and win games. Been with the organization for 11 years, and, and having an opportunity to come back and play um, um, against them, you know, it was it was, it was very uh, intriguing. But um, you know, going especially going against Vince, you know, I think he played well today. I think he, you know, uh, the team is a great young team, um, and they, they they played their heart out today. Now my head, my head goes off to them, to them all, you know, and also the coaching staff. They prepared well, um, you know, they had the game plan together and they executed. But uh, it was always it's always good to come in and get a win. You know, we had a couple of their best guys that they had from their team, and uh, yeah, we got down, and and we always, you know, we always felt like we had a shot with with Steve, and and uh, it was, yeah, it was pretty cool. And the locker room was was pretty animated afterwards, and the guys were, you know, we were pretty fired up. Um, but yeah, that was that was always, you know, back then that was a tough place to play. You know, even when Steve was there, even when he wasn't, you know, when we got him, it's still a tough place to play physical hard-nosed teams um and uh yeah so it's just, so getting that win for those guys was, was always it was, it was cool it's always good when you got you know someone and you face your own team you know whether it was a coach or player you know you always want to you want to win them all you know and uh, but it, it, there's always something special when you can win those type of games for a coach or a player or something like that and uh, you know not so much for them as well Perhaps swept up in the emotion a bit, it was an up-and-down performance by McNair, who had thrown two picks along with his three touchdowns. But in what was his defining moment of the season thus far, he had remained poised and found Mason late in the end zone for the touchdown that ended up winning it. His demeanor, it just never ceases to amaze me, Brian Billick said. The calm this man has. At no point have I ever seen him blink there, and there was a few times to blink out there. The defense's rickety day could be partially explained by Ray Lewis being out of the lineup with a back injury, and his replacement, Mike Smith, missing as well. We were making up defenses on the fly, literally, said Trevor Price, the hero of the day. 
we came up with some stuff. We had eight defensive backs playing, no linebackers, Adelius playing corner. I had no idea what was going on half the time. I just kept my nose down and focused on Vince Young. It spoke to some of the mad genius of what defensive coordinator Rex Ryan was pulling off with this unit, overloading sides one way and blitzing the other, putting Haloti Nada at safety, flanking the defense with Adelius Thomas out at corner. Perhaps their greatest strength was their versatility, and of course their ability to turn to the next man up when necessary. Will linebacker Bart Scott had once been an undrafted free agent who had flourished under Ryan and made a name for himself with his strong play and unapologetically loud mouth. I thank the Tennessee Titans for giving us Samari Roll, Derek Mason, and Steve McNair, Scott said. We didn't want their homecoming to be short-lived and sad. We wanted it to be a great memory. I think that the way we won is something that we'll remember for a long time. While the old AFC Central rivalry between these two teams was all but dead after the years had worn it away, this game, and the Ravens' reaction to it, felt like a throwback to those days. And while the Titans, now at 2-7, and seven, would not be in the picture long-term in the AFC, it was a feather in Steve's cap that he had been able to go into Nashville, control his emotions surrounding the game, and execute when it mattered to get a big win on the road. The Ravens were now 7-2, and two, and with another loss dropping the Bengals to 4-5, and five, the division title was coming closer and closer to their grasp. Having started 4-0 and faltering to 4-2, they had passed a big test out of the bye week by winning 2-3 of three on the road and snatching an in-division win over their biggest threat. There were plenty of other big guns within the conference to worry about, but Baltimore could deal with that in due time. For the moment, they could take pride in the fact that after a lot of questions following their two-game losing streak, that they very much belonged among them. February 3rd, 2013. As purple and gold confetti flies down around him, Ed Reed is in what he'd later describe as heaven. He's hoisting the Lombardi Trophy following the 34-31 Super Bowl victory over the San Francisco 49ers that had been so long coming to him. He did it in his hometown of New Orleans, making it extra special, as was the fact that despite it not ultimately being his last season, Reed knew the clock was ticking on him. Somewhat slowed down from his historic pace by injuries, Ed wasn't the same player by the 2012 season athletically but the same playmaker was still in there. He had shown that in the game by picking off Colin Kaepernick in what would be his final big play as a Raven. Looking on with a smile is Ray Lewis, who having just won his second championship, knew just how much it meant for Reed to get his first. Ray and all the other members of the franchise's old guard had done it in 2000, and now, 12 years later, he was the last man standing, watching some, but not all, of the new guard get to experience the same glory at long last. Namely, it was Reed, Terrell Suggs, punter Sam Cook, who'd help ice the game with an intentional safety thanks to the special teams-minded John Harbaugh's prowess, and Haloti Nada, the 06 first-rounder, who were there to taste the glory. It hadn't always been the easiest road for all of them, Reed especially. Their mercurial talent clashed with head coach John Harbaugh when he'd been hired in 2008, and their personality conflicts bucked their head many a time in the years since, including the championship season, when Harbaugh had to contain what was effectively a locker room mutiny. Haloti Nada had expanded upon this ahead of the game. Coach Harbaugh has done so many things for this team by the way he wanted this team to be and the way he wanted to run it, he said ahead of the Super Bowl. The first year or two, we definitely had some disagreements with him, but he definitely listened to some things that the players wanted. He was able to put his feelings down and let some things happen. This year has been totally where we've been able to communicate with Coach, and Coach has been able to communicate with the players. He's done a phenomenal job this whole year communicating with us, and I think that's been the biggest change. 
Nada started the game at D-Tackle, but had to leave with an injured knee. He celebrated the victory in street clothes with his children in close orbit, no doubt thinking back to the loss of his parents prior to the start of his career and what they'd think of him now having achieved the ultimate that the sport had to offer. Nada would remain with the team for another two seasons before being traded away, his legacy as a Hall of Very Good and future Ravens Ring of Honor member secured. Another lasting image from the Super Bowl is that of Terrell Suggs and Joe Flacco embracing each other amidst a massive celebratory scrum. The young quarterback had become an easy target in the media for years thanks to his perceived bland personality and inconsistent performances. One of his biggest defenders in that time period was Suggs, whose playful personality and passionate team leadership had truly begun to flourish by that point. Having been drafted the same night as Kyle Bowler and seen his fair share of veteran band-aids at the position, T. Sizzle felt he was uniquely attuned to what a true franchise quarterback actually was. A 10-year veteran who'd taken home Defensive Player of the Year honors in 2011, you'd think that Suggs might be getting close to ready to officially hang things up. But as it turned out, he would have plenty more gas in the tank. He'd spend much of the coming decade as the top lieutenant for John Harbaugh, playing the role of team leader that had once been held by Lewis. In 2019, he made his return to Baltimore in an Arizona Cardinals uniform, having surprisingly made the decision to sign for his hometown team the offseason prior. He had fun with Ravens fans that day in a Baltimore win, when the new young quarterback who would replace Flacco had another strong performance, well on his way to silencing doubters in a similar way that his predecessor had done, by winning a championship all those years ago. It was a true circle of life moment in that respect. Not everyone from the new guard was so lucky to be around for Super Bowl 47. Todd Heap would remain with the organization through the 2010 season. The old golden retriever of a tight end out of Arizona State remained productive over the course of what would be a Ring of Honor career with Baltimore, finally being released after many years of injuries had taken their toll on him. The Ravens got younger at the position with Ed Dixon and Dennis Pitta, while Heap also signed with what were ostensibly his hometown Cardinals, where he played for a brief stint before retiring, and eventually dabbling in a color analyst career for Baltimore. As the second most leading receiver in franchise history, and with a quietly tough reputation to boot, Heap is one of the defining Ravens of the Billick and early Harbaugh eras. It's a bit of poetic injustice that after being their first draft pick following Super Bowl 35, that the Ravens couldn't get another ring until Heap had just left town. But more often than not, things don't work out perfectly in sports. In fact, it can often be fairly heartbreaking. Someone with a similar story, funny enough, is the Ravens' all-time leading receiver. Derek Mason had been brought in in 2005 after a tremendous run in Tennessee to bring some much-needed professionalism to a receiver room that had largely lacked it over the years. Mason proved to be all that and more, the perfect bridge between the brash, talky Billick years and the more team-first approach that John Harbaugh instilled when he took the reins. The perfect security blanket for a young Joe Flacco, Derek played out the string of his tenure in Baltimore through 2010 and then spending 2011 across the Jets and Texans rosters before officially calling it a career. On June 11, 2012, he appeared in front of Baltimore media at the Castle, where he made it known he'd be signing a one-day contract to retire as a Raven. My run is over, he said to open his presser. It was a good one, and I'm happy. The decision wasn't hard to retire, and the decision where to retire was just as easy. Because like I said, my heart was here, it never left. My body left, but my heart stayed right here in these rooms. It's easy to forget now, but this was a big moment for the Ravens as a franchise. Just 15-odd years old by that point, a player of Mason's caliber, who had played for another organization longer, coming back to retire with the Ravens seemed to signal something. That as they were about to win their second Super Bowl in just a few months, Baltimore had officially made it as one of the classier clubs on offer in the league. It wasn't something that happened overnight, and it's something that was owed to some very smart and reputable people, one of whom was Ozzie Newsom, the one constant in the organization at that point who went all the way back to the beginning. Newsom sat next to Mason at his press conference that day and predictably had just the right thing to say about his all-time favorite free agent pickup. Over the 16 years, 17 years that we've been here, we've signed a lot of free agents, a lot of them, he said. 
but I don't know if there's any one player over the span of their career that did more for this organization than Derek Mason did. It wasn't hyperbole. Mason had come to Baltimore at almost the exact right time and brought a good-natured professional outlook to a positional group that had historically been a big problem for them. It didn't hurt that he produced a ton, ripping off multiple consecutive 1,000-yard seasons, something he had never even done with the Titans organization in all his years with them. He was the perfect fit at the perfect time, making the Ravens and their fans all but forget about the Terrell Owens fiasco a year before Mason had come into the fold. Mason himself had come into the picture for Baltimore one year before Steve McNair had, who had a similar effect on the quarterback position, but it was effectively just for one year. McNair wouldn't be in Baltimore much longer beyond 2006, and he knew he didn't have much left in the tank for the Super Bowl run he had been so desperately craving after coming up one yard short of hoisting the Lombardi back in 1999. Having just dispatched the Titans in Nashville in an act of sweet revenge, he had the Ravens sitting at 7-2 and slowly pulling away from the rest of the AFC North. By that point in time, it was more than fair to begin to size themselves up against the other heavyweights within the conference. There was the always strong New England Patriots leading the AFC East at 6-3 by that point, a squad that would close things out at 12-4. Also at 7-2 were the San Diego Chargers, a high-flying squad with their sights set on the Super Bowl, but also a game down on the Ravens by virtue of their loss in Baltimore. Surely this was a sign that the Ravens' formula of a stonewalling defense paired with complementary offense could get it done in the modern era, right? One team who could ultimately put that to the test was the squad surging above all the rest, the team who used to call Baltimore home. At a perfect 9-0 by Week 10, they certainly seemed like a good candidate. But there was a lot of football left to be played between then and a potential matchup between the two teams. And as both Steve McNair and Peyton Manning knew, the two men who had shared an MVP award a few years prior, absolutely anything could happen in football. And as they also knew, only one of them, if that, would be happy with the result when things were all said and done. Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Exit52Podcast, get at me at Jake Luke, and check out the Exit52Podcast.com for written companion pieces for each episode. 